Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bond by Numbers, and thank you very much for joining us this day. It's episode 49, and our topic today is the GoldenEye soundtrack. Yes, it's uh, it's time for us to go up to our waist in the mire, that is 1995's <laughs> GoldenEye soundtrack, written by Eric Serrault. And some might say, gentlemen, that we're going from the best, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, to the nadir of music for the franchise, Eric Serra's 1995 score. Uh, and before we get really? into that, yeah, because really. I was just wondering what you know how to fill that void in my heart, and I, <laughs> I thought the Golden Eyes soundtrack would, would would do it, and I guess uh, I was wrong. Well, 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 we'll see how wrong you were, but. Um, let me first welcome to the show and to the panel, as always, uh, my good friends and co-hosts, Jeff Chapman and Joshua Taylor over there in Canada. Hello. How you guys been doing lately? I know the world is shit, but uh, are we doing okay? <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's, same uh, it's as Pretty much same old, same old. Just uh, do what we can over here. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's going to happen with this election, boys? Oh, I don't even... Oh, man, I don't even want to get into that. How do you spell... <laughs> Balkanization. <laughs> B A L. Oh, well, I I, uh, I know there's a there's, there's such a shit show over here with Brexit and with um, you know well COVID everywhere of course is causing yeah yeah incredible challenges now as we're entering our second spike so we we, we, will, yeah. we won't talk about that let's uh, let's <laughs> just let's just get on with business now guys i'm, I'm sure let's you know talk about pleasant things like eric Serra's james bond golden ice <laughs> yeah this I know... is brought to you by sarcasm <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> now there's no doubt that uh, many of our listeners and uh, many in the bond community will be wondering why would we want to invest uh valuable time and creative energies into going through the story of and the the soundtrack of this collection of cues because because we can damn it because <laughs> we can but you know yeah. having done honor majesty's secret service earlier in the season i think it's only fair that we we look at the other end of the spectrum i think that's a good idea i think we did uh, and i'll be honest tooting our own horn if you will but uh, that was a it was a very good episode it was fun and, too. Yeah, a lot and, of fun. And uh, yeah, we and we definitely had some uh, good notes from uh, from listeners and that kind of stuff. So, I think it is a good idea to sort of go from one end to the other, and uh, you know, we'll dissect and, and discuss as best we can, and we'll see what happens. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like in the Under Majesty Good Service, we talked about the Moog sympathizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's definitely it, synth here. Oh, for sure. <laughs> And I think I think possibly a kazoo, but uh, we'll debate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I came up I came up with a a style of sound for this. And oh, I'll, good! I'll mention wow. it when we talk and see what you guys think. Okay, think. I'm looking forward to hearing your your take on it. But I think you're onto something, though. You know, I mean, from my point, guys, and from my place, I grew up with Goldeneye. Um, not liking this score at all, I found it really. I found it really quite quite annoying as a as a younger viewer. But but at the same time, I'm also I'm also putting my hands up and saying that I, my opinions were far more polarized as a teen. And sure. particularly, I was as I was getting into film music and as I was playing in the uh, the bands and whatnot that I that I was able to do. I, I think maybe some of my tastes and some of my opinions were. Well, as I say, just maybe a, a bit too sharp. And, and for my part, I wanted to get a, a really good look at this score and a proper study to see if my early biases or my early, <laughs> uh, uh, what would you call them? Uh, well, criticisms, criticisms yeah. still still kind of hold water or how much of it was. 
yeah, how much of it was uh, was warranted. And so mm. now that I'm a little bit of an older man and a little more wise in the ways of music, uh, theory, performance, listening, and I'm not just a grumpy teen, I think that Eric Serrat deserves a, a fair shake. So let's see if we can't peel back the skin on this one and, oh. uh, and give Mr. Serrat a fair shake, at least bond by numbers shake, however fair that may be. A shaking okay. off of the burdens. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I think that's a good idea because if you started off listening to this score, if you were starting to listen to scores for films, uh, I could see this one maybe turning a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like, is yeah. this what film scores Is this what film music is? Yeah. Uh, not necessarily. <clears throat> Josh, um, what was your first impression of the GoldenEye score? Because GoldenEye is a big film for you. We talked about it in our very first film feature uh, way back in 2018. I think it was November, was it, guys, our first episode on that? I think so. It was definitely the first yeah. one that I was a contributor for. It was the first yeah. one that we did, Jeff. So you were, you were with us, really, from the start. But... Uh, well, I mean, Josh, I remember as kids, you know, I mean, the GoldenEye soundtrack was part of the game as well as the film, and it was uh, kind of heavily used there in that environment, perhaps better suited for that environment. We'll, we'll see how, how it comes out to wash. But what, what are your opinions mm -hmm. of, what were your early opinions of, of the GoldenEye music? Did you really pay attention to it as a teen or, or what? Uh, when I first saw the movie, I didn't really pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, when the game came out, and that's kind of when I had my resurgence back into James Bond. Mm -hmm. I uh, the score was more noticeable to me. Um, I didn't hate it or anything like that. I found some tracks were very kind of interesting choices yeah. uh, for for music uh, tonal wise and whatnot. But it never really bothered me until I, got, I really got into Bond, the Bond films in particular. Yeah, like I got into the early Connery films, and then I remember you know the scores for like The Man with the Golden Gun and mm -hmm. The Living Daylights. And then particular, I think what really stood out for me was in '97. I loved the movie Tomorrow Never Dies. That was my first Bond movie in mm -hmm. the theater. Oh, right. So that, that, that was my first Bond theatrical experience. And the difference between the two of them was just so immeasurable to mm -hmm. me that I just completely forgot about the GoldenEye score. Mm -hmm. Whenever over the years that I've gone back to GoldenEye and watched it, it's always like the same kind of feelings I have about the score. It's different. It's weird. I yeah. don't hate it, but I don't love it either. Mm -hmm. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I listened to the score, analyzing it, mm -hmm. I'm still wondering, like, what could have been? Yeah. Especially yeah. when you put it up against the title song for the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Jeff, uh, what kind of impression did this score have on you when you first saw the film? It really didn't register as much as because I get kind of focused on the film itself. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, when I watch a film, obviously, I'm, I'm more aware of everything that's going on within like if i'm watching a scene or a film sure. i try and take i try and drink it all in now and obviously uh, you know i'm a i'm an adult um mm -hmm. in, in age only um and so obviously when i started to watch films uh like gold mine stuff i was more just like hey cool look at the guns you yeah. know that kind of stuff yeah, in this yeah. spot so when i was watching some of these scenes just to get the context of of the score, it works a lot better than uh, listening to some of the tracks by themselves. But I, I would say, uh, you know, when I would have first watched Goldeneye, which was not in the theater, though I was old enough to see it in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was the 15, not, wasn't it? A, a I, I would have been. I would have been 13, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it probably wouldn't have resonated. Like I wouldn't have. I would have been like, oh, that's odd, or mm -hmm. that's interesting, but like, it wasn't a make or break thing. I, I don't think I, it would have been. Yeah. You wouldn't have gone away, bought the score, and thought about it. Yeah. 
No, because the, the the first time I had really ever listened to a score, it was Josh, actually. And I, I think I've mentioned this in, in mm-hmm. uh, previous episodes. Uh, it was Josh that really got me into uh, film scores because, I mean, I had listened to classical music, but I didn't listen to it a lot. But Josh is really the one that got me back into listening to classical music and, and appreciating film scores and listening to them almost like classical pieces. And, and that actually that did a lot. Yeah, and, and I... I was about to say thank you because it really did actually it made a big difference for when I was when I would read I would put on a lot of scores more more so than classical music because I felt if I was going to read like an action book like because I like you know Tom Clancy and stuff like that if I was reading sort of like uh, like that kind of stuff I would put on like a score for a film like sure yeah it would be great. So anyways, uh, getting off topic but no, that's all right. uh, but I would say Goldeneye sort of like uh, someone's first dipping your toe into uh scores eh, it it could you could have an interesting reaction yeah you could you could start. never come back again <laughs> oh, hey you know everyone has their <laughs> opinions i do and well i'll, I'll give this caveat though guys like okay okay, okay like the golden eye score i think is what i think the issue with it is i just don't think it for many of us it fits what we think of it's a bond score it just doesn't sound like a James Bond movie mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. But this movie, this yeah. movie was scored between the professional and the Fifth Element. And the mm-hmm. Fifth Element. And the, types, and there you and the go. types of music yeah. that the gold yeah. that is used in Goldeneye that that does not really fit it, in my opinion, as a Bond no. film, yeah. works so well in the Fifth Element and even in yes, the professional, exactly. for example, because <laughs> it has a distinct kind yeah. of style mm-hmm. and sound fitting to like Luc Besson and well, that exactly. It's European and uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's too uh, European. It's not like exactly. it doesn't have that old John Barry feel. I guess well, you could say that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and then when you know once I was like, oh, he did the Fifth Element, and I'm like, I get it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. I see where this has all come from. Remember though, we we got we got this progressive revolution uh, mm. evolution story happening here. So we mm. we go from 1987's Living Daylights by John Barry, John Barry's Swan Song, beautiful story. Right. Yep. Then you have the License to Kill, which was Michael Kamen doing his usual action cues, but also trying yeah. to trying to convey Barry a little bit. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, after a couple of years, you have this big gap between the Bond films, and then you have Bond returning, but it's returning mm-hmm. with a distinctly different sound, a whole different attitude, a whole different perspective on James Bond yeah. itself. Very different. So you're yep. so you're wondering, you know, like what went into the into the mm-hmm. brainstorming. Or the uh, conception mm-hmm. of of creating a bond score like this. Well, yeah, absolutely. I I can I can help with that, guys. And I think maybe um, maybe now would be a good opportunity or a good time to uh, to just sort of sink into these waters a little bit. Uh, I would agree. Because you know, Goldeneye is really a contentious score within the community, among fans, among uh, movie score, you know, listeners, aficionados, whatever that the reputation of the score exists outside the Bond community as well. It's important to say that, that uh, this is not regarded as a particularly great musical score outside of the Bond community either, but it does have its defenders and its staunch defenders as well. So if we, if, if we uh, start by talking a little bit about Eric Sarah himself, I'll give you a little sure. bit of biographical information and then I'll talk about some of the earlier credits, okay, that he's responsible for, which sort of, while they certainly didn't pave the road for his his job with uh, with Eon and, and working here on Goldeneye, they did set the foundation for his style. 
Yeah, so thank you everybody for joining us in on this little adventure through the GoldenEye score. We hope it won't be too painful for those of you who don't like it. And if, like me, you're coming at this with some criticism already preconceived, maybe <laughs> you'll... Um, you might not change your opinion, but maybe some of this information will help to... Uh, to, to give you perspective at the very least it did help me a little bit and i'm going to credit at the outset here guys uh john burlingham whose music of james bond book i did use uh, to find some of this information a couple of interviews as well and reviews i'll credit as we go through the show and i'll put this information in the show notes so that you guys can access it uh from home okay sounds good eric sorrell Eric Sorrell was born in Paris, 1959. Uh, for those of you who like to play the matching game, he was born on the 9th of September. Don't know how important that is, but that puts him at uh, just about 61 years old right now. And by just about, I mean exactly. Yep. His, uh-huh. his, uh, his Wikipedia bio states that his father was a famous French songwriter in the 50s and 60s, but I could not actually find much information on him. Um, I'm sure if I lived in France and was going through the value villages there, I'd have no trouble getting <laughs> albums. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but no, I couldn't find much information on him. But I suppose he's he's one of these figures who it would be easier to research offline than online, if you know what I mean. Probably, probably yes. I, I, I yeah. understand what you mean there. In terms of your experience doing archive work and whatnot, you'll know what I'm talking about. His mom passed away uh, when he was very young, just seven years of age, and he was exposed to the world of music through his dad, mostly, and, you know, kind of growing up in a home that valued music and culture that way. So, uh, like a lot of, you know, composers and musicians, he had an early influence. Um, It was in the early 1980s that Sarah met Luc Besson, the French director, and he scored his first film, Le Dernier Combat, in 1983. And since then, he has scored every single one of Besson's films, apart from one picture. I think that when I think of Eric Seurat, I think of like that very Besson, mm. uh, Fifth Element kind of score, yeah. as opposed to, you know. I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I, it has, he has a certain style that works well with Besson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think maybe that's why they were good collaborators. Well, their most recent collaboration, Josh and Jeff, was uh, 2019's Anna, which stars Luke Evans, Killian Murphy, and Helen Mirren, oh, yeah. alongside uh, Sasha Lust, the model who plays the eponymous assassin. And, you know, I think... Oh, son loves his assassins, doesn't he? He sure does, man. Yeah, he really does. I mean, do you want to say... Well, I'll tell you what, I'll save that because I'm going to go into some of these Bassan films and you guys can just chip in about them as we survey exactly. through them. Um, His film scoring style is very synth-laden and established as such, and he's very well-respected, very well-regarded in his native France, as you can appreciate. Why not, you know? And I think some of his early work is particularly interesting. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that now. Because of his name's pronunciation in French, he's sometimes (laughs) known as RXRA. I saw that, yeah. I thought yeah, uh, I was like, oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I had to like say that out loud to figure it out, but I was like yeah. So did I. Oh I totally did, but that's <laughs> it. And then I was going through like my French alphabet in my head, like ah base. Like how does this yeah, work? Exactly, again? yeah. <laughs> I was like and then after I was like, Ah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, aside from his film work, Jens Seurat has also written songs. He plays bass in the 1980s for Jacques Higelin. Um, Higelin, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was a popular singer that passed away just a couple of years ago. And he's written music for uh, the Cirque du Soleil's 2008 Vegas show, which I found oh, quite cool. interesting. Yeah, And you can see some of that stuff online if you're interested in exactly what that sounds like. I don't know if Cirque du Soleil release albums. They probably do. but um, They do. 
Yeah. Oh, do they? Okay, cool. I remember working like in HMV and there, I recall Cirque du Soleil like soundtracks available. Very cool. Well, that's Eric Seurat early bit. Okay, now, I mean, that brings us up to about, um, well, I mean, 1983's Le Dernier Combat is the beginning of his collaboration with um, with Besson. But uh, in 1986, guys, he scores a science fiction film called Kamikaze, which is a film directed uh, by Didier Grousset, but it was co-written and produced by Luc Besson. So I'm presuming that's kind of where the mm. that's kind of where the collaboration came from. Now that the score for Kamikaze okay. is is very echoey, very synthetic, metallic, jazzy, but the melodies are a little more tangible than I think what we get in Goldeneye. And I would say for a science fiction film that's kind of out there, the music was quite suitable for the content. Um, a, a brilliant scientist goes insane, developing a technology that enables him to kill people by sending death rays through television cameras. He kills TV announcers and is hunted by the police. Okay, that, that's uh, that's the gist of it. You want to uh, listen? Do you want to listen to a little bit of Kamikaze? See what you think of sure. this? Sure. Yeah, why not? Give it a shot, huh? melody you know we got a melody happening here it's it kind of started off the track i don't know what he you like he loves those echoes in the background he, he loves those so much in his sports yeah he really does but i think this is quite a nifty little thing reminds me of like 80s anime music or <laughs> like like 80s 90s anime kind of music yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's just a little bit from, from Kamikaze. Uh, the track yeah. is... Actually, set. no, this definitely sounds like, it sounds like, um, you watch a lot of anime. I feel like what this is, is this is sort of showing like some kind of like futuristic cityscape. Yeah, well, I, I think you guys got it. I think you got it spot on. I mean, I, don't, I haven't yeah, seen. Like, I haven't I seen it. Like Akira or something, and like just showing like some like cityscape, like and then like fade in like the year, like you know, you know, like uh, Cyber Tokyo. <laughs> well, the track is called Procession in the Shaikuchi. Sorry, I'm just trying to read it as it scrolls across the screen. Procession, oh. <laughs> pr- procession in the Shakuachi Temple. So I, I guess definitely... yeah, very Asian kind of uh, sound there a little bit. Like, it's pretty uh, cool though. Pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool for sure. I can definitely foretell the ladies' first track from the Golden Eye. Oh mm. man, don't you... okay. Yeah, mm. don't. Oh. Well, <laughs> we're getting there. A couple, couple of years later, he goes on and he does uh, Luc Besson's Le Grand Bleu. And this is a really important moment for him because uh, the film is a fictionalized account of two of the 20th century's most famous freedivers, Jacques Mayol and Enzo Mallorca. But um, the, the film becomes something of a cult film in the diving community. 
Now, I don't know anything about the diving community. I wouldn't presume to know anything about the diving community, <laughs> but th this is one of their films, okay? Now, I do know that Luc Besson has a great interest in nature. He's done several documentary films. Uh, this is a fictionalized film, and apparently its cinematography is, is just fantastic. And the music that Sarah wrote for it earned him great reputation. And it's one of these films that is projected and played with a live studio uh, orchestra, you know, oh, you could go kind of get your ticket and, and see this thing. So it's still very much in the the cultural milieu, if we oh, may. Oh, okay. That's yeah. cool. But this movie was recut for American audiences. It was very successful in Europe, but a commercial failure in the U.S. It was recut for the American audiences, and Sarah's score was replaced with an original one by none other than Bill Conti, which I thought was quite interesting. interesting. So somebody was paying attention to the music on that one. And it kind of makes me wonder how seven years earlier, you know, or seven years later, how GoldenEye fell through the cracks, right. you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, someone's right. someone's watching for an American audience and saying, no, this score is not, is, is not sufficient. Yeah. And Ooh. they decide to get Bill Conti to do it. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is quite a nice little score as well. I'll just, um, I'll play a little bit from Le Grand Bleu. Oh. anyway, isn't it? Um, there's definitely <laughs> some, some sort of porpoise. <laughs> What's the porpoise of <laughs> I knew you'd pick up on that. There you are. And thank you. <laughs> anyway, so this is... Um, this is Le Grand Bleu. And like I say, it's, it's a score that's um, quite favored in, in France and by the entertainment and cultural community there I don't know very much about it all I know is it's a very popular film we get some sexy sax happening as well I do think though I would like to point out that because we're here talking about Goldeneye today there is precedent for melody in Sarah's music I, I don't know, but I feel like the, like now with that saxophone, the title should be called like Le Grand Blue Louis. <laughs> or, yeah, Le Grand Baby Blue. <laughs> uh, you guys, you guys um, are just apes, aren't you? Really? Wow. Present we all watched. We all watched well, Channel in North America. We all watched like, Channel Eleven when you were teenagers, man. Well, in, in North America, it was like yeah. you know, it's like after a certain time, it's like oh. It's the, uh, yeah, it's like the stuff that we shouldn't watch when we're kids is on TV. Okay, well, moving swiftly along. Uh, <laughs> 1991, Besson's nature documentary Atlantis. Now, this is an all-synth score, but there are some really excellent orchestra integrated into it. And one of the things that Sarah would do is he would hire orchestrators to put the things that he wrote in synth and on, on piano and whatnot 
to instruments. Now, I mean, he had he had obviously had the musical craft and intelligence to do that, um, but he wasn't interested in orchestrating himself. And it was always a job that he hired out, which is how John Altman got involved in GoldenEye, and we'll get to that very, very shortly. But okay. Atlantis, I don't know, do you guys know, have you seen that film? Do you know anything about that? Uh, no, no, I have I'm surprised you kind of skipped uh, Bassan's most famous film, uh, like of his career, that kind of really got him started, like worldwide. Which was La Femme Nikita, which was I haven't skipped it. Yeah, I haven't skipped it. It's just uh, it's just there on my next column down. I've just missed oh. it out of place. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Very good. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Anyway. <laughs> right. Okay. So do you want me to just go there first? Okay. Fuck no, you. No, I'll just no, do that. No, 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 no. You've called me go out now. Go, go, go to Atlantis for, <laughs> for God's sake. No, man. Um, okay. Right. We'll come back to La Femme Nikita, won't we? Like I was saying, it's uh, an, an atmospheric score, very suitable for the content, uh, but it is a nature documentary and it is based largely around the ocean. This track, okay, there's there's two tracks, very important, both of them. The first one, In the Kingdom of Spirits, I'd really like you to listen to, gentlemen, okay, In the Kingdom of Spirits. It starts off with that sort of clang that we're familiar with. Huh. underwater chorus kind of a texture tapestry of sound i don't i don't know how you'd describe it but you get the ocean from this anyway oh for sure and um i'm just gonna i'm just gonna fade down on that i'm gonna play you this track okay now this one guys i really want you to think about um golden eye okay this 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 track (sighs) is called wait for it okay iguana dance Okay. okay you can just enjoy this and if you're wondering um, how connected this could be to the, the scene with Onatop and Bond having a race at the beginning, okay? I'm kind of preparing you now. We got some lyrics in this one, too. I've never seen an iguana dance, but if I if I were to imagine one dancing, I guess this music might 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 be fitting. That, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I ever saw an iguana dance. I think I did see a gecko uh, in, in Australia in, in, in a Telus commercial. Well, that too. But I meant in Australia. <laughs> once I realized that uh, once his camouflage wasn't exactly working on a white neon sign because he was trying to turn all the colors, and then he just got really, 
he got really annoyed and couldn't do it. And then I was like, oh. And then I just saw him like dance and run away. And I'm serious. Like I was like, oh, oh there's a gecko. And he was on a white sign in oh, in God. in uh, in Australia. And I'm like, dude, if you can make this happen, I'm gonna be super impressed. Now I never, mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't able to take a photo, but I was like, if you can, if you can, <laughs> anyways. But anyways, getting back to what you're saying is. Yeah, you know what? If if that's what uh, iguana, uh, I mean, I could see an iguana dance to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not dissimilar to our car chase, is it? I mean, you you can see uh, some of the rudiments no. there, structurally. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, so the, yeah. a couple of tracks there from Atlantis, just quick listens, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, we've we, we've got a very amateur touch here on the show. We celebrate and we revel in our amateur touch. Uh, I've got a little Bluetooth speaker here working through my old school old school iPod. That's that's why we're whatever works. That's why we're getting in, such in a broad a, in a broad in a broad art history kind of sense. Would you define Sarah's style as postmodernist? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because like to me, that's what that sounded like to me. It's like mm-hmm. he could just make music that could connote idea of an iguana dancing through the types <laughs> of instruments that he chooses. Yeah. But he actually has to say, Do you want to dance? <laughs> indicating that it's about dancing. Uh, it's like he has no yeah. it's like there's no subtlety whatsoever. No, like, they're like yeah. breaking huh. down, telling you what you want, what you're supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. When you just listen, so you know, this is an iguana dancing. That's right. And, and this, <laughs> yeah. These are just some of the know. things that I feel that he's all kind of pushes in the GoldenEye soundtrack, and that is very postmodernist to me. Because well, it, it's self-referential, kind of, is what it is, and that that's yeah. postmodern, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're right, Josh. I think he's knowingly a postmodern yeah, composer. He, yeah. At least he's, in this respect, he's definitely a child of. Well, when I say a child, I shouldn't say a child, but he's definitely a product of the era of which he was young and and music was uh, it inspired him. Because mm-hmm. if we look at his age when he was like, you know, teenager to early 20s, especially when he did one of his first, like it showed 1981 is one of his first credits. Mm-hmm. He would have only been 22. And that's when, you know, the post-punk new wave was hitting it big in, in, in Europe and England mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So it's not surprising that he would, uh, gravitate towards synth and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah. being European and that kind of stuff. So it, it does make sense with his. Like again, I, I'm I'm generalizing and I'm assuming here, but listening to what you've shown and then also listening to Goldeneye and just sort of the age and the types of films and the types of of directors and their styles, it it makes sense. Yeah, if and you look at Besson too, because he even yeah. has that. He does the same kind of thing that like the French New Wave was doing, where they mm-hmm. took like the idea of of American film and of Hollywood film, and then like like the noir, for example. And you got like guys like Godard and Truffaut, and they're mm-hmm. basically deconstructing the the, the Hollywood, I guess, uh, shot by shot for shot uh, standard continuity. You know what I mean? Like they're they're playing with those tropes and those. That those those images that were so famously made by Hollywood and they're deconstructing them, and what I think what Pisson does in his film is he does he, he does he, he goes one level above. He gets once he gets once he gets popular, he not only he uses American Hollywood actors and has a kind of a Hollywood feel to his to his movies, but they're also very kind of postmodernist post French New Wave kind of style because he yeah. over exaggerates everything. Oh in his yeah, movies. absolutely. Like, Gary Oldman and and uh, uh, one of my favorite roles is uh, like it's just a random role for Gary Oldman in the Fifth Element, but he it works so well. Like it's like what his Southern uh, Hitler, his Southern yeah. character, yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. But also think of him as also in the Fifth Element, in the Fifth Element, but in the Professional, right? Well, as yes, the, of as the corrupt vice cop or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, we're, we're getting there. We're getting yeah, there. Yeah, we are. We are. This, yeah. um, this little musical introduction is almost through, guys. But Josh, mm-hmm. a couple, couple of moments ago, you called me out for putting Atlantis uh, in front of <laughs> La Femme Nikita. And now we're going to go back just a year uh, and we'll talk about Nikita. It's just because... my OCD doing that, man. Well, it's, partly that. It's, it's nothing for you. <laughs> partly it's, that. but nothing against you. <laughs> but it is important. And as you say, it's, it's kind of a, um, a watershed moment here in the careers of both men because this, this is really where we get the blueprint for Goldeneye. Everything you hear there in terms of villainy and kind of metallic clang is, is heard here. But I to, and then I'm not trying to show my, my hand before, you know, uh, prematurely, but it's a little bit better in Nikita. I think it's a little more at home. It's not kind of flashing its birthday suit in the face of like a series with a long musical tradition and an expectation to follow that musical tradition. Like <laughs> yes. it's, it's a little yes. bit more, uh, it is still derivative of what Sarah's done before. I think Nikita, but it, in terms of like its synth beats and its jazz and light moments, but we kind of accept it, and, and I think it's actually quite a, a lovely little little score because the the world that it decorates is an original one, and I, I don't know if I can explain it any you know, more any better than that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, Nikita is a film based on original idea, and it's kind of one of the first. I won't call it the progenitor because it certainly isn't, but it's one of one of the first of these sort of, you know, assassin type films, particularly one with a female lead like that, and yes. um, it, it's it's quite engaging, obviously. But it, it no, they made an American need... that had an American remake, did it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's also a TV show. Yeah, oh yeah, it's Canadian. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, in America, though, I mean, it it did hit in America. Um, but Besson felt that it wasn't marketed appropriately. It wasn't marketed as an action film, and instead, it kind of hit more art house screens than big screens. Right. And because you know, you, you know, you got a choice, right? Am I going to pitch this as a French film or as an action film? And if it was pitched as a French film first and an action film second, which is what happened to Nikita, then yeah. it's not going to get the ticket sales or the bums and seats that you'd expect. So, and I mean, I think what you're getting at here is that once Besson got a little more well-known in North mm-hmm. America, it probably got, I wouldn't say it got re-released, but it probably got more popular, sort of, yeah. almost like Redcon, and the people yeah. then yeah. started to go back and be like, I think oh, you're right. Jeezy yeah. did this, because I think that's, I think that's pretty much, I think, how I saw it, and I, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good project. It's a good film, and it is sure. a good score, and it is more at home there. But if you're looking for the blueprint to Goldeneye, even more than the professional, I think, which is coming up next, I, I think Nikita is probably where where it lies. Um, if you want to go back and have a look or listen sure. to that score and that film, but yeah, let, let's just um, move on then and talk a little bit about Leon. Uh, or the professional, as Josh correctly intimates, in America, another Besson project, probably. Yes. Probably Sarah's best film score at, in terms of like uh, the way people embraced it. Now, it does follow that Nikita blueprint, which, as, as, I, as I've intimated, is kind of the golden eye um, blueprint as well. And it yes. is heavily reliant on percussion and that sort of guttural digesting clang that the suspense is captured within, you know. But we, we do have strings that offer a little more orchestral feel in some light moments with Leon. Um, it's it's a little less schizophrenic than Goldeneye, too. And I don't know if that yeah. has something to do with the fact that it's it's a more linear narrative and it doesn't have to kind of go to different set pieces in quite the same way. But it does linger in its own stew. I mean, we talk a lot musically on the show about lingering in moments and scenes and whatnot. And 
we tend to yes. like that. And, and I think the professional does linger a bit more in its scenes than Goldeneye does. So perhaps that plays better into into the wheelhouse for a nicer piece of music from Sarah. I don't know. But what yeah. I do know is that the soundtrack was released, I got it here written down, October 1994. It was certified gold in Japan just a few years after that in December of 99, after it sold 100,000 copies. Wow. So that's a professional. Josh, it's, uh, you were the first one to show me that film. I think you were the one to show me the film too. He's just a big oh, pimp, isn't he? Yeah, he's a film pimp. He's a pusher. Well, there's two There's two versions of the of that film. There's yeah, right. the American version called The Professional, which was the edited profession. down. Yeah. And then there's the original French version called Leon. Thank you for that. Yeah. Now, in now there was edited down for uh, yeah. There was reasons why that I guess between American versus European audiences, uh, mm -hmm. things were edited down and changed, tweaked for the American version that might have went over better. In, oh, I think I know what you're getting at. Yeah, there was there was different. Uh, I, I don't think it was deliberate, but I just think a lot of people picked out some some very kind mm -hmm. of. You mean the relationship? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This I'm referring to the dynamic between Luke Besson's character and Natalie Portman's character. Uh -huh. How old was she when she was filming that? Uh, she would have been 13. 12, 13. Because if it, if it came out in '94, it's probably filming in '93, and she was born in '81. So. Okay. Right. Yep. I've seen both versions of the film, mm -hmm. and I never really saw the dynamic that people were suggesting in the movie very much. But you know, maybe I just wasn't looking for it, mm -hmm. and I guess I just it, it might have went past me, like. The, the, the subtlety of it, I don't Perhaps. know. Yeah, but I always found it was more of a, of a paternalistic kind of relationship. That's how I saw it. Yeah, too, that's uh, yeah. Because I she kind had of a terrible, too, yeah. she had a terrible father, a terrible family overall, and I mean, you're not even, but you're still disappointed to film. Mm -hmm, but, yeah, like the whole premise of the story is that she's this young girl with this terrible family, yeah, uh, whose father is like uh, some sort of like drug dealer of some kind, mm -hmm. and he gets. He gets tied up in the corruption of a vice cop in New York City, played by Gary Oldman. Yeah, ah, so, and here he is again, uh, showing up in Eric Serra. Here he is again, yeah, exactly. But, Three, um, yeah. yeah, I would say they're talking about the score. Uh, even though there is like these, it has this nice French kind of feel to it, I guess to fit, fit with the amigra of Leon's character in New York City, uh, working together with some like nice themes for Matilda, uh, innocent kind of childlike themes that are mixed with this kind of the synth being very kind of foreboding and mm -hmm. menacing. Uh, I think it works well as a score for that movie. Good. Let's yeah. move on then, guys. I mean, that, just a little introduction of the earlier films of Sarah that were leading up to um, were leading up to Goldeneye, and uh, we've arrived sure. basically now. We've arrived. The Bond producers are ready to take the music, like so many other things of the series, in a new direction after that hiatus. And John Barry explained that he had commitments which kept him from doing the film. Uh, he might have wanted to call it quits anyway, but he actually cited Cry the Beloved Country and an IMAX film across the sea of time as, quote, two projects I was really keen on and I had just had a newborn son. I wanted to have time with him and enjoy that side of my life. So... When asked about, you know, would he come back and do the bond, he, he, he did actually cite prior commitments instead of just, no, I've gone. Do you know what I mean? To me, there could be some also bad blood. Maybe Eon let AHA walk all over him. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe so. I mean, that that's certainly one of the reasons why um, he, he was really disappointed with the title song for that, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. But if you read this, if you read the story about there was a lot of tension in uh, oh, between yeah. him Tons. and be, between him and what's his name, uh, the lead singer of Aha. Uh-huh. I forget his name now. Uh, Aha, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but there'll Ber- be an Aha moment when you remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, Berlingham goes into detail about that too in his story. And, uh, you know, I mean, The Living Daylights is, let's face it, it's a much better score uh, yeah, than, yeah. than Goldeneye. But I'm not so sure that the story of its writing and it's, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's it's as interesting to talk about because it is so notably nicer. You know, when we did Honor Majesty's Secret Service, that was great to talk about because we had these new this, this new technology of sound that we could <laughs> integrate in and um, which Barry was playing with. But but here we've got uh, we've got Sarah. Anyway, getting back to it. Yeah. Um, According to agent composer Richard Kraft, whose clients have been nominated for 77 Academy Awards and the recipients of 17, uh, Sarah's scores were considered at the time to be quite original and on the cutting edge of where the next generation of film music would eventually be heading. And it was Kraft who suggested Sarah to MGM. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, documentary Score. It's kind of like a film music journey called Score. Um, it's definitely worth checking out and Kraft is on that interviewed kind of from a musical point of view anyway in addition to his synth blueprint which had already earned him a reputation Seurat had begun incorporating more and more orchestra into his scores and people were particularly impressed with the work he did on Atlantis along that front Marsha Gleeman who was the music president of MGMUA said quote when it became clear that John Barry would not be available, we decided to take the James Bond theme in an entirely new direction. We decided sure on did. Eric Serra. Yeah, sure did. But this, <laughs> this, this I found interesting. Serra was quite slow to bite. Uh, he was working, uh, according to Burlingham in his book, he was working in Spain on a solo album at the time of being invited into the Bond world, and he was very mm. reluctant to fly to London and to meet with the producers. He saw most of the finished film, and he turned the project down. Now, I'm, I'm going to offer him a bit of credit here, guys, because instead of saying, like, oh, typical French attitude, right, about adapting his work and his style to a quintessential English spy film franchise, and maybe, okay, there, yeah. may, maybe there was some of that, maybe there was, maybe, but I'd like to think, and I never would have thought this before, the, the earlier Scott would never have thought about this, but maybe he turned it down because he had his own reservations about how good a score he would be able to produce for this franchise. Very possible. Yeah, yeah, like, very possible. Uh, he maybe thought his a... style may not have meshed with the yeah, bottom. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> maybe he was reluctant because he was unwilling to compromise as a very young, well, not that young, but, you know, he's 60 now. He so he, 35. Yeah, 35. I mean, 35, yeah, that's young. As a young, young, you know, artiste type guy, maybe yeah. he felt that this wouldn't be a good fit for him. Anyway, I mean, I, I'm certainly not alone because Kraft, Richard Kraft, who was representing him, remembers, and he says this, after fighting so hard to get Eric offered the film, I wanted to fly across the Atlantic to strangle him for not jumping at the opportunity. <laughs> and it wasn't until the president of his record label contacted him a few days later and said, are you nuts, that Sarah actually changed his mind. <laughs> anyway, much of the film was temp-tracked with music from The Professional, which is interesting, oh. uh, eventually to be replaced by original music. 
Interesting. That, yeah. I'm, Interesting. I'm wondering wow. if like maybe like Barbara Broccoli or even Cubby, who was still alive at the time, mm-hmm. maybe they saw the professional. Yeah. And and because the soundtrack was a big, it was a big seller, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That I mean, um, the producers liked the vibe and the atmosphere of that. I mean, that that's what John Altman, John Altman, who was a British composer that previously orchestrated some of Sarah's music and conducted it, conducted yes. the Atlant- Atlantis and the professional. He worked on both of those scores. And he remembers that the Bond producers really liked the vibe and the atmosphere of the professional so what you say is correct they hired eric to reproduce that sound in the bond setting so i mean the idea that kind of sarah came out and surprised him with this odd music i think that's probably a little bit unfair to eric sarah i mean he sort of did what he was asked to do you know oh yeah definitely i mean he you know so anyway sarah himself said this when they called me to score the movie they said that they were big fans of my music So I thought the best thing was to write my music and not be influenced by the old James Bond. So I just did what I wanted. Mm. That's what he said. Now, I mean, yeah, that's very obvious, Jeff. You're 100 Mm percent correct. But I also think in that it's it's not stated, at least not yet. But in that there's an acknowledgement, isn't there, that he did ignore the tradition that he was kind of expected to walk within. Yeah. And that's that's a good point to say, like, which doesn't mean that he couldn't do something that mm-hmm. would have been more like that, but he decided to do his own thing, exactly. which is cool. Uh-huh. So, and then, and then now, you know, my, my hamster wheel is turning. I don't know if you can hear it, uh, <laughs> but, but it's like, what would it actually sound like? No, you know, like it, what yeah, if, yeah. what if he did? And the thing is, is that, and there's a couple of tracks, obviously, um, that do sound like, uh, sort of like, a a straight ahead sort of orchestral mm-hmm. theme or, or something like that, which means that he does like, he does know how to do it, mm-hmm. but he prefers in, in obviously in, in, in certain parts of the film and certain tracks to do his, uh, his synth kind of style. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know how to do that. Obviously he's a professional, uh, pun, no pun intended. Um, but, uh, it just shows that he was trying to do this a certain way. Yeah, totally. I wonder, Josh, what, what do you think of that? Because, you know, reading between the lines and thinking about the pool in which you're swimming as a young composer, right, at that, that age, 35, you can't write a Bond score on your own terms. Now, maybe if he was uh, replacing Barry in 1963, he could, but not when you're picking up on the 17th film. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's a big burden because yeah. I, I think mentally he's probably happy to do it the way that he, want, that he would not want to do it as opposed to keeping up with that tradition because it's always mm-hmm. going to be compared against it. That's right. So if he tries to imitate it, he might, it might not... Uh, I guess as an artist, you just have to go with what feels right to you, uh-huh. I suppose. And, and that's he, what he did. And, and maybe we disagree with it, but that's art, you know, like everyone well, has their interpretation of it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. um, and again, we're talking about how popular the professional was as a movie, yeah. uh, how the soundtrack was very popular. And I think maybe they just wanted to market this as to like, uh, not just to James Bond fans. But oh, yeah. The European film market, which was just breaking out and being like, Remember this time too, Goldeneye came out in 1995. Mm-hmm. A yeah. years we have like filmmakers like Lupusong coming out of the woodwork in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Then we have a lot of American independent films coming out. Like you got the era of Miramax, yep. you got Tarantino beginning. You got so much postmodernism occurring in the 90s, and just in Hollywood mm-hmm. as well. The whole independent scene comes yeah. in the, in the, in the 90s is when the yeah. indie scene. Indie, yeah. 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 So having a very kind of distinct kind of style, mm-hmm. I think perhaps. Eon somehow where you might have agreed with Sarah's take on the score. Okay. 
maybe just maybe they wanted to pre present an international Bond film. That's a good observation. Yeah, it, it is a good observation. More Indian style, I guess you could say. I could, you could say. It is a good observation, and, and you might be right there to a certain extent. Um, I'm, I'm going. I, I'm probably I half right, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I don't think there's. I mean, of course, it's a marketable, valuable, profit-directed decision behind this too, right? Like, if you can get a European sound, knowing that the film is going to sell where the audience is already established. Yeah. But Bond at this point, guys, Bond is it's... already massive worldwide. Like, well, yeah, and it's it, it uh, to be honest it, it with really you. Is. I'm a bit surprised that they would go this way. I mean, remember we had said, and I know this is one of my main points when I uh, on the actual episode when we had reviewed it all those years ago, uh, <laughs> is that this is a very important Bond film because it's kind of like it's it's bringing it back, right? Mm -hmm. In in the sense it's that like, there was there was there was quite a hiatus, mm -hmm. and it was Six the first years, Bond. Yeah, and it was the first Bond post, you know, like Berlin Wall and, yep. and the Cold yep. War. And so, and, you know, you, you get Brosnan. So it's almost kind of like, you know, the etch a shake it up, and here we go, start mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they would get someone like an Eric Serra. Because if you think, like, this is a very important film. It's, it, you know, it's like Bond is back kind of thing. Like, the, you know, so it's important. So it is interesting that they take someone like an Eric Serra for the score. Yeah, for the score, exactly, Jeff. So we have yeah. a hiatus between License to Kill and Goldeneye for so long. Yes. And now we have maybe like bro the Broccoli's having cold and Michael G. Wilson having cold feet mm -hmm. about right. how they're going to sell Bond. How they're going yeah. to, are, are people going to want Bond back? Are they going to embrace the return of Bond? Have, have, is it like, is yeah. it like Arthur Doyle fans wearing black armbands because <laughs> Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. That was apocryphal. Uh -huh. Come on, that's an oh. apocryphal story. We we proved that wrong on our other podcast. Oh, oh I know, I know. But I'm just giving an example. <laughs> you're holding the though. cat's arse to the sun, is what you're doing. <laughs> oh my! Oh, I know. I went to a weird spot just now, yeah. but okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I guess it's a Scottish I, expression. Yeah. All, all I'm saying, you're taking piss out of me. Um, all I'm saying is that um, I think there was a consensus at, at Eon that mm -hmm. this might be just an example of their marketing for the movie because mm -hmm. they wanted to have a different style than what was known what they ever had before. It was well, like, they uh, did. I mean, that, that's what that's yeah. what the the music president Marsha Gleeman said that they wanted an entirely new direction. And I think they thought Seurat was the man to do it for them. That's what I think. <laughs> Richard Kraft explained that, and I think this is kind of important in this too that. All of his films, well, not all of his films, but his chief collaborator was Luc Besson, right? And Besson's films and cultural influences, up until maybe Nikita, maybe, were kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum to the Bond franchise. Right. And he described the experience for Sarah as walking into an established series with really high stakes, strong producers, and an unfamiliar director. And I think maybe... When you feel isolated that way as a composer or as an artist or as a creative type in a, a new professional relationship, you're going yeah. to be a little bit frigid. You're going to be a little bit, no, I'm sticking to this. You told me you liked my music, yeah, so right. I'm going to give you my music. I'm not used to working with a huge studio this way. I'm not used to working with new you know, maybe even something as, as xenophobic as new accents and new collaborators. You know I mean I, yeah. I don't know. And let's look at the director, Martin Campbell, who's notorious for being difficult. Mm. Um, who's yeah? Like I've, I've, there's a lot of stories about Martin Campbell about how he's very intense. Um, and now uh, there are yes, yeah. Now there are, but I'm just yeah. wondering. Even back then, maybe yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe him and 
uh, Martin Campbell just didn't see eye to eye, you know, like it's very possible. Well, Martin Campbell because... will, will come into this conversation in a couple moments. All oh, right. There is a cultural difference, though, that we need to accept between a European artistic filmmaker or creative and the biggest franchise of all time. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's a big and international production. The relationship between Sarah and Robert Altman, Robert Altman? No, John Altman. Had John been, Altman. Yeah, had been uh, ongoing for a while, as I said. So the two of them were quite used to working together. Essentially, Sarah would be in Paris creating in his own studio electronic score using synths and samples and whatnot. He'd then send digital recordings to Altman, who would take the demos and orchestrate what was needed, translating the strings and the woodwind parts for real musicians. Um, Burlingham says in his book that the end result was mostly an electronic score with real strings and the occasional flute or harp solo. And I think that translates pretty well to what the album gives us as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just... One little thing here, uh, Sarah says a little something on his synth style, and I think Jeff, this is going to pick up on something you said a moment ago. <laughs> okay. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read directly from the book here. Okay, uh, from the horse's own mouth. Sarah said, uh, "Some of the sounds I program, some of them I play. I use a lot of percussion all the time. There is no rule. Sometimes it's completely synthetic and completely programmed. Sometimes it's played. Sometimes it's looped." I love to mix a lot of different things from totally different continents. I like, for example, to mix African percussion with symphony orchestra, with synthesizers, and vocals from ethnic records. Yeah. So that, that's kind of him, him on his style, you know? Okay. Yeah, like, yeah, that, that, that would explain one of the tracks. Element. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's the sure, fifth element, the, uh, taxi, the uh, taxi cab chase in the city, where he's playing like almost like yeah. uh, Arabic music, almost like Arabic yeah. in the chase sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Very, yeah. Very, yeah. Well, I, I can definitely see that. Eric Serra invited the producers, the director, and the editor of the film to his studio to preview the first 10 minutes of music from the film. Now, <laughs> oh, man, I would love to be a fly in the wall hey, for that. According to him, okay, <laughs> these minutes had, and I quote, all the different colors, end quote, that would be featured in the score. And everyone, apparently, were fully supportive of the direction he was going in, and they promised him, another quote, complete freedom. Okay, that's his own expression quoted there. It's called jet lag. No, I'm just <laughs> From London? I don't know, man. London to Paris? You can drive it in like okay, no fine. time. Anyway, uh, benefit of the doubt, right? But they, they promised him freedom. And apart from the occasional use of the Bond film, oh, sorry, uh, they, they promised him complete freedom as he moved through the score, apart from the occasional use of the Bond theme at appropriate moments. That's what they wanted to see. Now, he would argue that he did that. I think most of the listeners and the producers would argue that he didn't. But towards the end of the scoring process, the producers started to get nervous, okay, about the new approach to music and about Sarah's very industrial, very percussive and very electronic sound. They were upset about a lack of Bond theme throughout Mm -hmm. and any sense of the classic orchestral Bond sound was missing. Yes, he was using John Altman and orchestrating certain things for small orchestra players, but there wasn't really that... uh, that sound that they were looking for. Now, Richard Kraft, again, Kraft is Sarah's agent, remembers that Eric Serra wrote an Eric Serra score for the movie, for better yeah. or worse. And no Bond yeah. movie has sounded like that. He yeah, goes on. absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So he's not lying yet, right? He goes on, though. He goes on to say that there was a nervousness throughout the entire scoring process of, <laughs> is this really the right approach? Now, he doesn't say whether that was among the producers or within his client 
but he just says that there was a nervousness kind of permeating around the entire production of the score, probably both sides. Now, producers, they decided that they wanted a more traditional feel for some bits. Sarah was not cooperative towards that goal, and he refused the requests for him to rewrite music. Now, I think that is a young, arrogant thing to do. And I think, and I'm going to give Sarah credit because he does talk about that in a, in a moment or two, but I think that when you say to your producer, no, I'm not going to do that, or your director says, this music's not working for me, rewrite it, you don't say no, right? That's not professional, that's not collaborative. No, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, that's the way he, he went about it. Having been hired to write his own music, I guess we can see that he'd be a little upset by them saying, we don't sure. want this now, and here we are in post-production, we don't want any of that, this anymore. That would be hard to hear. Yeah, it would yes. be hard to hear, uh, particularly as a young artist, kind of a, a, a guy like him. But I feel like the idea of working for this franchise and it being a wonderful opportunity, like that never really seems to have come into the equation for him. He was never thinking of himself as like, a guy who's part of something much bigger than himself. And maybe that's the myopic view of young, you know, young artists. I don't know. Right. I don't know. But I can see a young person maybe in his situation, given what we said, kind of planting his feet down pretty hard, but compromise, constructive criticism, they, they just don't really seem things that he was terribly interested in. Now, mm -hmm. a few years ago, guys, he did an interview. Sarah did an interview with a man named Nicholas Sozak. I believe I'm creating and pronounce his name properly. Sozak. Uh, he was a creator of the James Bond dossier. John Altman intuited that a rift between them, the two parties, was probably inevitable once the producer started cutting and requesting. Here's what he said. Uh, Eric Sarah was ahead of his time, but as we have seen nearly 20 years later... Bond music still follows traditional paths. And I think he's kind of right on it, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Yes. It kind of yeah, smacks the point. Agree. Anyway, um, moving on. Burlingham reports in his book that late in the dubbing process where music, dialogue, and sound effects are all mixed up, the concerns about music reached a crisis point. So we've, got, we've gone from nervousness to crisis point. The straw that broke the camel's back, as most people listening will know, and you guys yourself will know, was the tank scene. This is arguably the film's biggest, or at least its most complex action scene, I think, if I could say that. And as Altman remembers it in his interview with Sutzak, he was in a pretty difficult position when Wilson and Broccoli approached him to rework the music because he was technically working for Eric Serra. So... Imagine when his boss refuses to rework the music and then they go to you and they ask you to rewrite the music. He said that he would only do it if Martin Campbell called Eric uh, Sarah and explained the situation. Ooh. He, he kind of needed his boss's approval. And I, th I think that's, that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, it is smartish, isn't it? Because Sarah's brought you on as an orchestrator. Then the producers say, yeah. And then they say, we want you to do it instead. Well, I can't do it. I'm, I'm hired by the guy you you don't like anymore. So yeah. where does that it, leave me, right? It might have helped him. Like in, if, yeah. if, you took, if you took the job like right then and there, like mm -hmm. it, yeah, that might have helped him in the present. But I mean, down the road, though, he could have exactly. been like yep. look, looked at in the film score community as someone a bit of an ambitious careerist, you know, and yeah. not an artist. You know what I mean? But also as an orchestrator, he's worked before with this man. And I don't think you just want to 
for the exactly. sake of for the sake of uh, you know one scene in a film, you don't want to end that relationship, regardless of what you may think of. Oh, okay. of and it. there's so, that, of course, too. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, what Altman did essentially, they called on him to completely rescore the sequence. Now, the, the track on the album that he was asked to rescore, if you're looking at it, is a pleasant drive in Saint Petersburg, right? We're going to talk about that now very, very soon because we're getting on to the score. But the, the, the one with the Super Mario Brothers music in it? Yeah. What Altman said is that what I did basically was a high action thing with lots of brass and the Bond theme woven into it. Eric did what he felt was right. He chose to be eccentric with it. I tried to stay within the Bond tradition. Now, when you're, li- when you're watching the film, what you hear during the tank scene is John Altman's rewritten music for that. If you buy the album, A Pleasant Drive in St. Petersburg is not in the film because that track is not used for the tank scene. But that's what Eric Serra originally wrote for the tank scene. Burlingham confirms Altman's reworking of the scene, reporting that he conducted a large string orchestra or section of about 60 plus players and a few woodwind, brass and harp players over four days at London's Angel Studio in late August to mid-September of 1995. When Eric Serra heard the final mix at the opening in New York, he was very upset. He used the expression completely destroyed to describe his impressions, explaining that, quote, music was just not a priority at all. You could only hear the loudest instruments, maybe 10% of the orchestrations. Lots of little details were lost. For me, it was a disaster. What you could hear did not make sense, end quote. Now, clearly, mm. clearly there was some some creative vision for his score, which nobody but himself saw that had been decapitated, that had just been cut apart right through the editing and the dubbing of the picture. And I think, you know, guys, if you listen to that track, a pleasant day in St. Petersburg, I think you can kind of get some of that core in that, you know, because it does feed into other elements of the score. And I kind of see where he's, I'm not saying I like the music, but I'm saying that from his perspective, sitting there watching this film, knowing that that part has been, you know, omitted from the film, knowing that your orchestrator has rewritten a section for it, if, if you consider that as like a thematic, an important thematic link or maybe even heart to the score, and that's excised and taken away, I, I can kind of see why the score feels like it does. Like there's no sense of, you know, kind of linking up or connection, right? Yeah, this is like, a, this is Seurat, the artist, I think, um, because he's not collaborating with he's not collaborating with them like he dictated from the beginning and they agreed they signed him on because of that mm-hmm. that it would be his own style and it would mm-hmm. be his own thing when when he composed yeah, this work yeah. and then all of a sudden like there's something to replace it mm-hmm. and it, he has his own probably his own kind of language in his mind to communicate mm-hmm. the ideas that he wanted to that only he can see however yeah and, that's it that's the problem uh, and but no one else can, and that's why Altman couldn't make the same connections from his mm-hmm. other pieces to to connect with, you know what mm-hmm. he he wasn't even telling his collaborator Altman, you know how what 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 his vision was. That's what it no. tells to me that yeah. even though Altman was his assistant, was his collaborator, he wasn't really conveying his vision to Altman either. So that, how, that's why I, Altman missed yeah. the mark completely. I think you're right, and if you think about the professional collaborations, right, that that. Y- that we value today or maybe like the relationships in music that we hear about a lot, how important communication is to producing a, a, a product that, that you're so very proud of at the end, you know? Anyway, despite what my own feelings might have been like back in the 90s, during my early years of kind of Bond fandom, because I did despise the music in this film, I think it's really difficult for me now as an older guy to reflect on this score and blame anybody in particular. Like, let's face it, right? We got Eric Serrat doing what Eric Serrat does, hired to do what he does. He's no more to blame, I suppose, than 
uh, like Vangelis or Beyonce or fuck, I don't know, Sting, Jim Carrey, like any of these people for doing what they do. But um, and I guess, I guess also he was encouraged to keep on going. You know, he does. I think he he does fall down a little bit, though, for not collaborating and not being professional because he could have probably avoided some of these some of this this pitfall mm. if if he had just seemed to be a bit more cooperative, you know, and it feels to me that the communication just wasn't there on both sides because you got on one corner, you got a solo artist musician who's kind of championed in his own country with his own professional collaborators fresh visionary if you think of it that way very unused to the deep waters of a franchise and then you're selected by a couple of rather new producers i mean yeah i know cubby is still mm -hmm. alive but it's wilson and it's barbara broccoli largely right fresh from a hiatus of six years who are eager to get something new going on it's and, and i mean i'm more akin to viewing the golden eye experience musically as kind of like a perfect storm of, of all sorts of different variables like you got overconfidence ah. you got you got entitlement maybe naivety on both sides of the equation i mm -hmm. i don't know uh, what i do know and this is the end of my little intro to all of this is that in november of 2011 when eric Sarah had an opportunity to to speak to this very experience he said even with the frustration and disappointment, I'm very happy to be part of the James Bond legend. Now, I would have composed something different to avoid the problems. Plus, I would have been a bit more professional instead of being so artistic. That's his final word on the subject. And, you know, I, I kind of tip my hat to him because he acknowledges there that there was a bit of arrogance, that he wasn't a good collaborator, and he was more interested in being artistic than he was a Bond composer, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I give him tip of the hat as well. Mm. So there you go, guys. I mean, that, that's just an introduction, a little bit of info on Sarah's uh, early years, his early scores, and information about the relationship. Now, as I read it, as I hear it, I'm thinking we got a problem with communication, and there's all sorts of variables that probably do, as I say, you know, they, they create this kind of perfect storm um, that led to the music being what it was. Uh, but if if you're ready. And I know our listeners are ready. They've probably been ready for ages. But uh, sh shall we shall we just step into the score and start talking about it then? I, I think so, yes. <laughs> I think so. We've been waiting a while. Uh, well, but before we go track for track uh, through the score, let's just start with the title song, okay? I got yeah, a little, yeah, yeah. little brief info on that. MGM was already searching for a high-profile singer for the song by the uh, time principal photography wrapped in June of 95. Uh, you'll like this, guys. The Rolling Stones were first approached, but they turned them down. Oh, what? Yeah, turned them, turned them down. But uh, the very next idea that they had, okay. which, which was a song written by Bono and the Edge with vocals by Tina Turner, had hit the target, seemingly. Bono and The Edge uh, were enjoying success along with producer Nellie Hooper for their Batman Forever song. I was going to say, that's it very... Hold me, thrill, thrill yeah. me, kiss me. I kill like that me. song. Yeah. It's a good, good song. song. It, wasn't it almost the same year, too? Because yeah, I mean, this yeah. is 95. Yeah. It was uh, the like, same that's year. That's pretty cool. There was two yeah. great songs from that soundtrack. There was <laughs> that song and... Um, the Seal uh, one. Kids from Iran. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that song. Yeah, I mean, it's good, but I was like, oh, it's so boring. But I, but I, I, I do like it. And I, <laughs> yeah. But it's, but, but that, you know, that's actually very interesting. And I'm curious, how many other bands have ever written two different like hit songs or title songs for a film in the same year? Because that's kind of a neat piece of trivia. I, I, I might yeah. look into that. Because yeah. you th think about it, yeah, like, and I mean, at the same time, like, they also released an album in '95. I think it was Discotech, correct? Mm, pop uh, Discotech. 
or pop. One sorry, of those. Sorry. No, one of those yeah. two. I, I don't know. Disco I don't. Tech is on, but at the same time, Disco Tech is on pop. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, um, but uh, but that's interesting though that they wrote two different songs mm-hmm. at at the same time for two different films of Very the cool. same year. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. Anyway, sorry. Go, keep going. No, that's fine, man. Um, Tina Turner is quoted in Burlingham's book uh, by saying this. Bono and the Edge were neighbors of mine in the south of France. They came over and Edge played the song on my piano. Bono wanted to write the song because he spent his honeymoon at Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, there you go. Uh, By all accounts, Tina Turner enjoyed doing the song. Even though the lyrics held zero relevance for the story, even she figured that one out. Um, <laughs> she, um, but she thought that it, quote, sounded like the right track for the movie. It sounds like it fits, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nellie, Nellie Hooper's production team included arranger-conductor Craig Armstrong, who felt that Bono's first demo was very Bondian. Uh, he conducted over 70 musicians in the orchestral session on a single afternoon at Olympic at Olympic Studio in London, and oh, Tina, Turner, cool. Tina Turner arrived to put her final vocals on the track, and the whole thing was remembered by Armstrong, at least, as being tight and pretty cooperative, mm. enjoyable, and he recalls that Bono was in a good mood that day, and the whole <laughs> atmosphere was really untense. He says it was a really fun day. Also mm. part of the team was programmer Marius DeVrie, who, along with Hooper and Armstrong, had just finished the Batman song and would go on to do Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet together. Yeah, I just think it's, it's obvious that this crew knew how to finish kind of each other's sentences, yeah. you know, because the this collaboration, work, right? Yeah, collaboration. And if uh, if I recall correctly, guys, this song is in each of our top ten lists, so it's one that we yeah. liked. Oh yeah, it's good. It uh, it spent nine weeks on the chart, premiering November eighteenth, and it peaked at number two on the Billboard chart on the 9th of December, nineteen ninety five. Um, yeah, surely, so. yeah, it's a real Shirley Bassey worthy, I yeah, guess, torture. Yeah, I right. You know, to uh, yeah. use a term that that we've been reading uh, in our in our in a, another podcast about mm-hmm. Philip Marlowe, mm-hmm. uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe books. I've learned that the term torture refers to a like a nightclub singer mm-hmm. yeah so, i yeah. guess the torch singer uh, yeah a torch singer i guess you yeah could say, right? mm-hmm. so yeah so i yeah. thought the expression torture kind of fit you know the shirley bassey model that tina turner was kind of espousing here yeah right yeah no in, i uh, i like it uh in terms of album sales guys the the golden eye soundtrack um didn't really sell terribly well the single was all right obviously as i said but uh the soundtrack not so much uk and north american critics were really fierce about this score despite how well it sold in europe um some went went as far to say well some went as far to say that it ruined the film entirely but i think (laughs) most critics stopped short uh just acknowledging that it it, it may have ushered in a new sound but it completely failed to link to the franchise's past and that's kind of where the critics uh, ended with that yeah it kind of went against the legacy already established, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let, let's start, guys, by talking about the Golden Eye Overture, which follows sure. the title track. So, All right. So what do you think, Jeff? Uh, so right off the <laughs> bat, I was like, okay, um, you know, it, it, it sets the tone. I was like, what's going on here? This is different. This is definitely, you know, not like the, the song. One of these things is not like the other. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, like, it sets an interesting tone. And I'm, I, I, you know, I'm okay. This is cool. And then, you know, there's like that odd metallic sort of industrial, like, nature in it. You know, and I find like, uh, you know, with that whole me- metallic sounding like a, like a hammer, uh, it, it kind of hones in on... Um, with like the Iron Curtain, possibly, and like the yeah, cool it captures that Russian of, you know, feel. As obviously it the does, opening yeah. part is sort of 
before, like, so it's an 89, so it's still the USSR, like we had mentioned this before. Yes. And, uh, and then it, obviously, after that, it, it's 95, so it's after the fall. But yeah. so then I was thinking, and I, I came up with this for, like, the, the way, like, he uses this throughout the film. I call this the hammer and sickle synth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and he loves to use that throughout the film. But uh, I, I, and I mean, I think it was because when I was listening to it in order, I was like, okay, this is okay. And then I I kind of got a bit sick of it mm-hmm. as it goes on in the score. But yeah, uh, yeah. for the for the overture, I I don't mind it because uh, I thought, oh, okay, it's not going to be like in every track. However, <laughs> yeah, that's what you'd think. Hey, yeah. This sets the stage, I think, for... Okay, I'm I'm being a bit harsh here. I did say on my notes, this sets the stage for the atrocities to come. And now that we've (laughs) talked about Syrah and stuff like that, like I'm going to take the the atrocity back a little bit. This just sets the stage for the the difference, I guess, the 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 differences that are to come compared to other Bond scores. Because it's not terrible music per se. Like Jeff says, it has that hammer and sickle. It has Mm. that Russian feel. (laughs) works well for the opening sequence because you sure. feel like you're in the Soviet Union. Yeah. It's atmospheric. It works well in yeah, that kind of exactly. for a bit. Now, I have here, you know, does Syrah believe that Russia sounds like the interior of the Red October? Like, yeah, that's <laughs> basically, yeah. It's like, it's funny too, Scott, um, me and you are big fans of Mark Snow, the uh, mm-hmm. composer of the X-Files. Yeah. And he does use this kind of tone. I've actually heard Mark Snow on the X-Files use this kind of tone in some sequences yeah yeah i think it's that one episode i think in uh, season two dodd Cal. Mm-hmm. uh that's mm-hmm. the one in the north sea or whatever and they start to they age just, really quickly yeah yeah exactly and they use a similar type of music uh in that mm-hmm. in, uh that, that kind of echoing echoing hammering sound i guess you could say yeah uh, that Sura evokes here. Well, I think something you're touching on, Josh, I mean, it, it filters in through some of my comments as well, that there, there, the principal feeling I get from listening to the GoldenEye score is that it isn't a film score, it's a TV score, when I could just think of it as being incidental music to, like, just Inci- any, any well, throwaway episode of something. Yeah. It doesn't well, really that's the thing. It's feel like a, like a film score. I, I would agree with you. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. It's but fine, no, it's because a lot of the tracks are very short, which doesn't necessarily mean... It's not a bad thing, and there's a lot of there's a lot of scores out there where there's you know there's like thirty tracks and like mm-hmm. you know like a minute here, two minutes there, but there's a lot that can happen. And again, it's sure. thematic, so there's a couple of swells here and there. But and you have and the thing is, is you can't. It's one of those things you just can't listen to that track by itself. You have to listen to it, mm-hmm. you know, um, in order. I guess is how it works. Mm-hmm. But um, with 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 these kind of tracks it is it is interesting and you definitely have to listen to them i guess because there's a lot of little pieces and if you listen to the scores and and they work it's just that a lot of it is sort of thematic and it's just a couple of swells here and there with with the hammer and sickle synth which yeah is sometimes it's just it's like okay and then yeah exactly and then comes the kazoo yeah exactly the kazoo comes in like amidst all that industrial kind of sound that kazoo which i think sura is trying to evoke that kind of bond spy kind of feel Uh, to it like i don't hear kazoo it sounds like like a kazoo or some sort of you mean that sort of synth trumpet stuff yeah exactly i call it a kazoo that's my that's my explanation Right. Okay. Both take wind, but I think that's about that's about where the comparison stops. <laughs> Just the wind. But out the of TV myself. thing is a very good point, though, because yeah. 
with yeah. the television, you're probably dealing with a lower budget, and so you're yeah. using synthesizer and electronic right. sounds because you don't have a full orchestra. Yeah, Whereas but, Bond films are known for their John Barry orchestras. That's mm -hmm. 100% a Bond film is known for. Yeah. And Seurat uses a synthesizer because that's his style, because that's, that's the European style, kind yeah. of style. So when you put it on the GoldenEye, a Bond soundtrack, it sounds like a TV score because mm -hmm. he's using yeah. the same kind of, like Mark Snow uses yeah, synthesizer, that's true. obviously, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. it's actually a sense of like, it sounds like TV. It's just that he's not using a full yes, orchestra. You're right. The, and yeah, he's using yeah. things to replace the orchestra. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And what we yep. see on television in North America is, and what we hear, the, the oral landscape is always synthesizer, isn't it? Because, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Well, to be fair, though, the television scores in the past like decade and a bit have actually yeah, have improved changed. Yeah, incredibly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Big a time. lot of look composers look nowadays yeah. have, have gone from TV to film. Like, look at Michael Gacino, they, Barry McCrary, yeah. Ramin Dejawadi. Like, yep. you know, t TV scores, I, but I guess it has to do with the budget behind them as well, right? So, yeah, they're, they're well, massive budgets now. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, let's, um, let's move on, uh, unless yeah, you guys have so, something uh, more to say about no. the Golden Eye Overture. No, I, I think that there's some good workable stuff in that overture, yeah. and it's nice to listen to. But the track pretty sure. much has all of what you want from, from the score, really. And, and you, it, you don't like to think <laughs> of a of, of a score as like hitting its best points at the very start. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, but, exactly. Well, it, that's funny because like when I had mentioned when I we were messaging each other, I was like, oh man. I'm digging this so far, and that yeah. was because I had just gotten into <laughs> the overture. It, yeah. and, and then, and then, of course, the next track, I was like, "What <laughs> is happening?" Yeah. Yes. Well, let's so, talk about the next track, "Ladies oh, First. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll start with that. Okay. okay. Yeah, cool. Go ahead, "Ladies First. He's he's so <laughs> <laughs> funny guy. He is so tonally off. Uh, the main problem I have with some of his scores, I think, with me connecting to them emotionally, is that he has no interest in pathos. He just yeah. likes quirky music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, again, telling you how to feel. And, yeah. I'm, and I say it again, I'm pretty sure that is a kazoo utilized at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Usually Bond scores are <laughs> consistent throughout the film, but this piece wants you to feel that it's a quirky comedy moment. Mm -hmm. it thematically, you know, that chirpy synth and its playfulness, I guess they're trying to undercut, or Syrah is trying to undercut, the menace that is Zinnia on a top, mm. and it shows what, what M calls, you know, what M is saying about James Bond, that he's a cavalier bad boy, <laughs> yeah. and just the yeah. playful, ridiculous yeah. kind of sequence. And again, like I said, they don't want to introduce on a top as the heavy yet. Not yet. It's kind of happens another pursuit by James Bond. So it's kind of, I guess, understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, right. So for me, yeah. when I started listening to this, I, I had to do like a double take. Like I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, well, what is this? And then I was like, what is this, Primus? <laughs> so I was like, what? Yeah. I was like, or like, I was like, it's either Primus <laughs> or an opening to a, an episode or a vignette for a Nickelodeon cartoon. Oh, you mentioned Primus is great. Scott's a huge Primus fan. Yeah, I do love it. I love it. No, no, I know. That's less. actually kind of why I mentioned that. But I was yeah. like, I, I mean, cool. it was a joke. But I'm, That's like, true. Though. It, sounds, it sounds that way, doesn't it? Because yeah, I used to play Jeff like the the uh, Primus uh, stuff you 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 sent me. Yeah, I like I, I do like a bit of Les Claypool. Yeah, for sure. But I was just like, what mm. what is this? <laughs> but, Did you remember it, Jeff, from the scene? You remember it from the the chase? No, no, I I, I didn't. Wow, that that surprises me. You didn't like. We I'm gonna go back and listen to our episode because sure. we must have talked about this when we watched the film. We must have. Probably. That we talked Maybe. about it back in November. I mean, it, maybe it's, Jeff was just distracted by the cute redhead in the car that was with Bond. Or maybe, whatever. maybe so. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 
Or Famke Jansen looking pretty awesome driving yeah. a uh, Ferrari, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the yeah. visuals are great in the scene, and the music you're right is is just. Is, I mean, what more do you got on this one, Jeff? Anything else? Uh, not not a whole lot to be honest with you. Like, I mean, it, it is it is what it is. It's just like, it's a it's a it's a jarring, almost comedic, like cartoony yep. it is, style. Man. I'll tell you what I thought of when you're saying comedic and cartoony. This is honestly where my mind is going when I'm listening to this. Again, when you, when you see it in the in the film, you're like, okay, this is dumb, and I don't like it, and it's taken the end of the scene. <laughs> yeah. But when you yes. listen to it on album without the image, what comes to my mind, and this probably says more about me than the music, but I'm thinking. Like Caesar Romero, Burgess Meredith dancing yeah. after tying up the dynamic duo or something, you know, like in their lair. I'm picturing them dancing to this, or I'm thinking like Bat Dance, like Prince. I'm expecting Vicky Vale, Vicky Vale like to come it, up, yeah. you know. Like see, it's it's and, really weird. Yeah, and see it, what what I was thinking of was like I made I made the joke about Primus, but I was also thinking about like you know when you would watch a cartoon and so it would be going to the next cartoon and there would be like that kind of like wacky music to sort of, it would show the name of the episode and then it would go to the episode. Yeah. This yeah. is how I felt. Like I felt mm -hmm. like I'm watching like some Nickelodeon cartoon and then it shows the title <laughs> of the episode and then you're like, okay, and here we go. This is yeah. what I felt. Yeah. This is how no, I, I felt. could totally see Or that. like Dragon Ball music. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. I'd say Dragon Ball's probably got a bit more heft to it than this, you know? I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't have that. I think we, we I all, guess we're I all thinking we're all on the same like page. Toes. Yeah. There is an attempt, though, guys, like just before the two minute mark here, where um, I don't know if you picked up on this, where Sarah, he tries to go a little bit slow and serious, right? Yeah. But yeah. only for like a minute, almost like as if the birthday clown just kind of stops to go to the toilet or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or and he then has he gets... to go and reload his, uh, his balloon <laughs> yeah. animal gun. That's right. Yeah. We just get a no, small break. Well, in my anyway. opinion, if, if, if there was a clown involved, then he should have had, sure, the fate of 008 in the beginning of Octopus. Among Bond. Uh, fans this is this is a track that really sinks you know in the moment of the film and it it really jars on the album like whoa wow yeah. i don't know this was just not a great artistic decision and it's surprising that yes. with the tank sequence left i mean you know out for revision that this wasn't also but maybe they felt like well we've paid this guy it's done it's too late in production let's just yeah. not pressure we can't get rid of yeah it. yeah exactly yeah. and so you know, i probably sound, i probably sounded like rob lowe on parks and recreation here but this is literally the worst yeah. Bond track, I think, in the history of all the films, in my opinion. Like, I the worst would soundtrack. Have to agree with you. Well, yeah. Let's let's see how how we do as we go through this, though. In case wait, there's one wait, to challenge. Wait, 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 John Barry using oh, that slide whistle is still number one. This might be number two. I just. What about the next track, guys? We share the same okay. passions. This uh, is a casino honest, scene. I... I think that might be one of the best tracks. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. well, and, and again, this is where I was like, okay, so he went from that to this, so I know that he can do orchestral mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I I was impressed with it. I was like, okay, I like it. It's a little more um, sort of ma mainstream and sort of meat and potatoes for orchestral kind of uh, sound and, and instrumentation, and I liked it. It yeah. is ephemeral, though, isn't it? Like, and I think you're right, Jeff. I think it only stands out as kind of nice because we've got the we got the flute, which is what John Barry in the late '80s. His last three scores were really heavily based around those kind of flute melodies, and then you got 
what came before it with the ladies first track i think it stands yes. out as being nice because of that sharp contrast to what what came well, before yeah. you know so, so, uh, so basically I mean, yeah. that so basically that was a mix of the uh the casino music yeah. and also natalia's theme as well as as i kind of call it or the love theme i guess you could say yeah the love theme. Theme. yeah was, because you do yeah. hear that natalia theme like by in with the flute kind of that's being yeah. used right mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's also a scene that's not hard to score correctly because the actors do everything. Like that whole sequence yeah. between Famke yes. Jansen and Pierce Brosnan is a fantastic, meet cute. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is two, good. Two antagonists, right? So. Yeah, and I, I rewatched the film for for this discussion, and Famke Jansen's really, really good. Oh, she's like what 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 she, you take awesome. away your takeaway is, is obviously her kind of sexual energy, but her performance is actually so much more than that. Did you know that she based her performance on Barbara Carrera and Never Say Never Again? <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that, didn't we, a few weeks yeah. ago, a couple yeah, months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys can start the chat for um, the next track. Uh, a little surprise okay. for you. Yeah, okay. More continuance with this one of the echoing metallic submarine music. Yeah. And uh, the kazoo, as I call it, is back in this one as well. So it's more it of the same, more of the same. Yeah, I mean, and again... Uh, it's uh yeah again it's a it's a nice uh, little track i feel like it keeps and that's the important thing is that it keeps parts of the overture uh and then it kind of it's it it, it tones down the hammer and sickle synth so it, it's it's kind of a nice little mixture between the two yeah, it's a little yeah it's a little bit of like uh suspense kind of music i guess you could say to build it up uh, yeah but I, I do like the build up in that sequence though like almost like the build up is really good in that in that sequence Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think we can see here that he, he does, he can obviously like do orchestral. And this track is actually, it, it is good. And I, I think sort of like the mixture, sort of like the way he kind of put the those two together works. Mm -hmm. um, better than some of the other tracks uh, where there was some of the, the hammer and sickle synth and it, it doesn't work with the orchestral pieces. Oh, yeah. It shows consistency with the overture established yeah. at the very beginning. So we're setting this it's showing a consistency of him continuing on and throwing a little bit of variety in there, making it suspenseful. A little bit. You know, like, yeah. And I think we're going now into the sixth track, the Severnaya Suite. This uh -huh. is clearly the sequence where the Severnaya Station is uh, yeah. taken over yeah. by Oromov and everyone is killed by uh, everyone is killed. So, but of course, Natalia is the only survivor. We hear the Natalia theme in different octaves, mm -hmm. a very kind of sad version, and then also a very kind of powerful version. And yeah, it, it's this quite is, repetitive. This, yeah, yeah it's, it's repetitive, but it's generic, but it works very well. And I think this is the closest in, in a way in a score, other than another another track that uh, Sura is kind of going for that Bond feel, mm -hmm. I guess, because we're seeing this as a character piece through our character, the whole yes. situation through yeah. a character's eyes. I so I think he was aware of that when he was scoring it. Yeah, you're not going to fail to score on this track, are you? I mean, this is no. this is generic. It's not bad, but it uh, I find it quite loud, and it, it's it's kind of like repetitive and loud in the scene because it's yeah, it's simple and it's memorable, but well, it, that's, it's yeah, that's it. you know, there's nothing that's to really. What I, yeah, I'm just saying. Certain, I said it was an certain, excellent track. And it's straightforward yeah. and works well. I mean, that's really <laughs> what it is. It's like he's pressing uh, a button on a synthesizer. Insert, you know, uh, maudlin. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Music track, you know what I mean? That's essentially what he's doing yeah. there. <laughs> and I, I think it's possibly, it's probably, I would say it's the top three best tracks of the score. I, I am kind of leaning between that and uh, we share the same passion, I guess, is what I was thinking. Interesting. 
Okay. And now we go into number seven, uh, mm-hmm. Our Lady of Simlens. Yeah, this is, look, this is what, like, it's a, it's a very short track on the CD yeah, at least. Like and, and the scene, six or something. the scene, what do we got? We got some, like, wind chimes, some sort of echoey chanting going on at the start yeah, of this. Yeah, the and chanting then, is weird. And then well, it just kind of opens up. She's in the or- I think the chanting comes to the fact that she's in a church, right? So, because that's because that's where. Well, okay, she how do you explain up. it through the rest yeah, of the film? Yeah, but the chanting, but ah, it doesn't sound it like it doesn't it. sound like it's any kind of like Gregorian chants or like it doesn't sound like it's like. A, it, no, it, it no. sounds like almost like it, it sounds very like ethnic sounding. Like it doesn't yeah. sound like like well, some kind Russian of like Orthodox, I guess. Yeah, Maybe they have a different style than Gregorian. Well, chant. I mean, I, and I'm, <laughs> I, and I can't I can't comment on that because I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, exactly. and I'm trying to listen to it, and I'm like, I'm trying to think, like, does this sound like some kind of Gregorian or like, yeah, Rus- Russian Orthodox or some kind of just like mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. Christian. I think you're giving Music him way too and... much credit. I just think he wanted a woman's <laughs> voice to do like a whispery Maybe. ghosty thing. That's all I think he was aiming very for here. And again, very because Byzantine, I was just like, very mysterious. Yeah, it was very mysterious. And then, and then once you had played me the the other some of his other tracks uh, from his earlier work, then this mm. one started to make more sense. But at the <laughs> same time, I just don't feel that. Uh, especially with the title Our Lady of Smolensk I'm like where the hell do you get that from this but whatever that's, <laughs> that's a... the name of the church right that's, I, that's know, I, I, I just mean like oh I, I see what you I mean, mean yeah why title it this yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so here's a track I kind of like number eight Whispering Statues I think it's I think it's a fitting atmospheric track. It's suspenseful. Sure. It's exactly. also kind of deep as well, and it's perfect for that Janus Trevelyan. Yeah, the revelation. Yeah, that is good. Yep. Also, the atmospheric of all the statues in the in the uh, you know in the mm-hmm. yard, like in that big yard or whatever, in that um, outside the city. See like, this yeah. level on the video game. I hate this on GoldenEye 64. Oh God! Huh. Yeah. Oh, you're walking around forever before you find them. What's um, it called? The mo- the, uh, the, the the monument park or something yeah like something that. like that yeah, yeah. I don't know, it's been ages but at, I remember not like the it. name of this track makes sense with yeah, what's going yeah, on yeah it does it does uh, and the music works uh, like I was just gonna say what my note was saying like up to a minute it's very Russian and then it comes back to the hammer and sickle sledge but you're right but, it is I, I've I've made the same mark the first minute is kind of interesting and then the second yeah, part of the yeah. track is just a little bland and then yes. we get a bit of solo piano and and it just kind of yeah, dies off yeah, so, that's so I call it short and sweet as an S-U-I-T-E. Right? That's how I describe this track. Aye. <laughs> Aye. Okay. Well, you guys were talking earlier about the next track, Run, Shoot, and Jump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, don't, why don't you yeah. go away and tell your little story about this one? Yeah, um, I mean, I have my piece on it, of course, but I'd like to hear Jeff's take on it. Oh, well, I mean, again, I, I thought it was a good track. Uh, and I was saying, like, it accentuates the action and the urgency. You can feel that. Uh, and totally, it's, yeah. you know, and it, it's, it, it did, however, and just because I guess it's Goldeneye and we all kind of gravitate towards the video game being the age that we are, you know, halfway through, it feels like the timer is running out on the mission. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then at the very end, it kind of almost feels like it's Danny Elfman's rooftop battle. Okay, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. just a little bit, and I'm like, and so, like, and I appreciate it for what it is. Like, it's, you know, it's a nice little action piece, but... Yeah, uh, it's a rousing action cue, and doesn't sound like dripping water echoing the cave mixed with synth. I think think the theme with the Russian (laughs) setting and and has a great feel of menace and urgency to it. I mean, Uh it's used very well in the archive scene. In the archive scene, it is, yeah. Like, yeah, when how the whole buildup of how it's edited with the film and how Bond, uh, uh, you know, like Ormov, you know, was shot before, you know, the whole shootout and the leading up to the tank chase. 
And then, of course, it has great uh, feel to it when the showdown between Trevelyan and Bond on the satellite dish on the array there. Yeah, that's right. It's reused. And I think this is a good example, isn't it, of where Altman's orchestrations really work? Because remember, this isn't Sarah conducting. This isn't Sarah even putting this music to orchestra. This is John Altman's orchestration here that's really speaking to us in this. Oh, wow. Okay. And now they know that's Syrah. That makes perfect sense. Well, no, it's his music. It's his music. But this isn't a piece that has been rewritten by Altman. But this is a piece that's been orchestrated by him. So he he would have taken the digital files, uh, the digital, uh, you know, the the samples and the synth track, and he would have been orchestrating this for for the orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's cool. but but yeah, like I think this track, you know, is very Bondian, and I think it works yes. well. With yeah, the yeah, yeah, it is, and that's it's why yeah, it's really short. Yeah, it's yeah, it's short. Yeah, it's like sixty I seconds agree. or something. And the yeah. cymbal crash at the yeah. end, I found a little jarring. I don't know if that maybe that's just me, but yeah. it's a, you know, that was a weird coda. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. quite weird. But, yeah. but, but once it starts going, like it's so good, and then mm-hmm. it just drops yeah. afterward. Yeah. You don't hear any kind of music like it, and I think the movie needed no. more of that kind of music yeah. to make it feel like a Bond movie, in my opinion. Absolutely. Like you could have actually even had like a song, the movie's title song, could have somehow been worked in that to that piece of music. Yeah, just, just, just like it's thematic of something that yeah. they had initially, and maybe they didn't use or something, and then they they came back to it. I don't know. And you know what? I'm gonna I guess I'm gonna sort of just throw out my hot take as things go here, is that I I listened to some of the Goldeneye soundtrack. I think I like the GoldenEye soundtrack to the N64 <laughs> game better than this. <laughs> there's some pretty cool tracks. Actually, there's a YouTube video, Jeff, you should check out. Someone basically uh, edited like about 10 minutes of GoldenEye, like the main, I guess the main strokes of the whole movie. Right. Yeah. But they dubbed in like uh, uh-huh. all the sound effects and music oh, from the game nice. for the actual film. So like when, <laughs> so like the scene where, like at the beginning where they're in the, uh, they're in the facility there. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and Trevelyan uh, throws uh, Bond the AK-47, right. it makes yeah. that, like, yeah. that ammo sound, you know, when you pick up the ammo. <laughs> cool. Is, in his island series, it's the exact soundtrack. Yeah. Send, a, send us the link to that, would you, so oh, I can man, uh, I like spread that, that up, yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, okay. And, uh, okay. Well, that brings, that brings us on, guys, to... Um, a Pleasant to, Drive in St. Petersburg? A Pleasant Drive in St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. which was yeah. what Sarah had originally envisioned <laughs> for the tank chase. So oh, this, oh. this is an interesting one, and I have a kind of a funny description of what I think this one is. Knock yourself out. So when I listen to this, I picture like Massive Attack playing around with James Bond music in their cabin in the Fl- in Flotsam Paradise, which is uh, the cruise ship in uh, Fifth Element. That's what <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, you're not far off, are you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. but that's, that's what I picture because I'm like, this is a weird one. Is mm, the Blue weird. Alien opera singer gonna 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 come out and start singing soon? Well, there yeah, are female uh, vocals in this track, so maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a weird one. This is this really is an odd one. I mean, you're not wrong, Jeff. It's uh, it. This is this was the misdirection that led the producers to get John Altman to to reorchestrate or sorry to rewrite this to rewrite the scene. But for me, man, like there's a moment of scratch in here and rap that's brought in like that makes me think of the Fresh Prince. And I, and then once that once that's in my head, I'm done. I'm out of the scene. Yeah. And it is such a shame because it's an awesome scene. And I know it's laden with product placement and all that rest of it, but it's really, really a nicely storyboarded scene, you know? Yeah, I love Harriet. Yeah, <laughs> but it did, It deserved a much better, much better treatment than this. And I mean, John Altman put that together in four days, you know, what he did, which is pretty impressive. 
Well, my first response to this track was Mario Brothers music with the Bond theme played on what that sounds like a kid's toy organ with male and female <laughs> Russian vocals to remind us that we are in Russia again, and a near insulting, faint guitar rendition of the Bond theme. Uh, not to mention synth that feels totally off for the action sequence. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Also, as I as Jeff pointed out, it's reminiscent of the Fifth Element soundtrack, mm -hmm. and it's, it's more fitting for for that kind of film than a James Bond film. Yeah, I, it, it absolutely it, is. Yeah, like it doesn't uh, capture the thrill of the moment, only the weird, uh, the weird uh, quirkiness of the moment, and it doesn't cut one emotionally at all. Like, it doesn't live up to the thrills being shown on screen. It's so mechanical mm -hmm. and 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 empty. I, I I just yeah I just got nothing from it whatsoever. I can see why they wanted to change it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Particularly for a set piece like that, you know. Sure. I, I don't I don't think it's as bad as Ladies First. Oh. Uh, it doesn't take me out like that takes me out, but <laughs> yes. it it I takes me out. I did a double take. Like, I like a double take like... pigeon. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Moonraker oh. style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the pigeon was oh, doing God. double take for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to quote uh, Warren there. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Guys, what do you think about the next one, Fatal Weakness? Because I think that this is a track not without some evolution, but it's there's, all right. really, there's it's... no melodic impact here to so much of this score. Yeah. You know? We've got a good clanging, a good... a good propulsive rhythm, but it, sure. it's it's just no melody on top of no. that. No. Yeah. I mean, it's like, again, it's, it's thematic. It's fine. It, there's a buildup. And I feel like it, it doesn't overuse the hammer and sickle synth, which is good. That's why I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. And that's that's how I categorize it as a quote unquote good track because it's not hitting you over the head with that hammer and sickle synth that we keep getting. Like I understand, you know, with scores and thematics, you always want to lightly bring in something for you know a, a certain scene or a, there's something like a character comes in you want to maybe bring in their theme so i get that uh, and so and that's why i think this track is good because it does there is it, you know it's thematic uh, and it doesn't overuse that how much have we how much josh do you think sorry buddy i just want to ask you before yeah. we, we go on how much do you think we've been spoiled by that sort of new hollywood new classical hollywood style that like Barry and Williams with their Le Motif have brought in like here we are 10 tracks into this thing almost and I'm feeling like man something's really missing here and and I'm wondering like I keep talking about melody I mean is this just is this my inability as a listener or my conditioning as a John Williams fan or as a, as a you know as Goldsmith whatever like is this just what happens when you're so used to those big seminal scores of the new classical Hollywood tradition yeah, I think so. I think we have expectations of what a Bond score yeah, should we sound have like. I think that plays. <laughs> yes. You want it to be very like exotic, but also sweeping and and uh, and bringing right into the moment. You know, but you're part of the adventure sort of thing. Like you're on this great adventure. Mm -hmm. Sarah's music reminds me that I'm watching a movie as opposed yeah. to uh, immersing yes. uh, in a Bond yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, it's and like. Exactly. He, yeah, he's, that's, he's, that's a good. That's a good point. What he's doing is that he's pushing me back from the action. Now, this, this track, though, 11, Fatal Weakness, this is the sequence where Bond has the showdown with the first showdown with Trevelyan on the train car. Yes. And as a terms of urgency and tension, this track uh -huh. is actually really good. And even like the constant percussion there, that is very mechanical and is very hypnotizing, in my opinion. It does work well with the scene. You're right, man. And uh, I got no real problem with this one. On its own, though, I, it's kind of flat on the cadaver it's tough, table, yeah. though. 
yeah. there's not much to listen to on its on itself. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we then move on to that's what keeps you alone, and this is where we see the love theme at its best, probably. Yeah. And and this yeah. might be like Jeff says. I think he's probably not wrong. This this might be the best thing about the score, um, the love theme. You know, I mean, it it, it stands out at least for me, I think, and it's very listenable. Yeah. But again, how much of it stands out because it's just in sharp contrast to the rest of well, it. Well, that's, I think you, that's a good yeah, part of it, You, you compare you. this to other love themes in the series and it, it doesn't even show up on the register, you know? No, it doesn't even, not it doesn't at even, all. It's nothing there. It's like, like any other love theme is better. To the rest of this. Yeah. Sarai is good at doing love themes, though, like The Fifth Element, uh, uh, even okay, like in, okay. the, in, in The Professional and But and this is not films. as good, though, buddy. This is not as good as anything else, love theme-wise, yeah. from the from the whole franchise. Any, oh, you, God. Name, you name any oh, one. God, no. That's what, I, yeah, oh, that's what Scott's getting at. It's like... oh, I, oh, I understand it. It's a very, very blasé version of it. Again, the, it's, it's generic yes. love theme. It's very but, generic. But the flutes, the flutes really stand out to me here, but I've realized now, after rewatching the film and listening to the album again, that the, the reason they stand out is because they get me wanting John Barry's flutes and octopusy <laughs> and a view to a kill. And like, you know yes. what I mean? Like that's actually why, why they, they stand out. It's not because I like them. I no, like what, what they make me right think on. of. It's yeah. giving, it it, it uh, gives you nostalgia. I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It yeah. triggers your nostalgia. But I think Jeff, I, I don't remember exactly if this is what you said just a few moments ago when you were talking about that theme, but I, 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 I certainly think you're right. It's one of the better things in the score. Oh, it is. And, uh, but again, I, I think you hit the, you know, the hammer and sickle on the nail. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that it's, um, we're just, because we're used to that, we're thinking like, oh, no, this is fine. But you're like, it's just the quality of it is like, if you look at the rest of love themes throughout Bond scores, it's nothing compared to them. But no. if you look at the rest of the the, 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 the avant-garde and sort of the, the all over the place, style of, of, of Syrah in this. That's it's, maybe yeah. where we, we say that it's quote unquote like a good track or it or it works. It's a which, traditional I mean it does, one. but yeah. again Relative. we're going from sort of the all numbers. over the place to 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 this style. I so think. what we're, what I think we're, you're right. What we're moving towards then guys, I think is an agreement. Um we won't call it a thesis yet or a statement, but <laughs> we're, we're we're moving towards an agreement that this is just not the right film for Eric Sarra. And no. his music is just not suitable for the tradition that has been established through the orchestral sound of Barry and his contemporaries, right? Yeah. Well, let's let's move on and, and talk about Dish Out of Water. Okay, yeah. Go ahead, I, Josh. I think he builds a suspense slowly with the piano or something. You know, yeah. I think it's a piano. Um, and mm-hmm. that mechanical huh. drumming suggesting the helicopter on the screen. And then that tribal jungle intensity when on a top death grip is on Bond. And then, yeah. of course, her yeah. final moments. Mm-hmm. And then we get some old timey kind of music. I mean, like old traditional film score music with uh, mixes Syrah's style as the dish rises out of the lake. Yes, and we I, do. Yeah. And I, yeah, I can't put my finger on it, but it reminds me of like Miklos Rosa a bit. Mm-hmm. Like those cues oh, yeah. from, okay. from okay. those Bible epic whenever a Roman yeah. legion marches by. Like it well, just has that <laughs> big epic feel to it. I made yeah. the note, Josh, of Gustav Holst, kind of the planets. Like it's, oh, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit nice. sillier. It's a bit no, sillier than that. And you know what's funny though? The way I described it is I was saying that this is a like the, a, gr- a good brooding track like build up that kind of you know yeah uh, and then it keeps the listener interested and then all of a sudden and then it, it it's also got a bit of, I felt like the way you guys described it was probably better than me but I said it almost had like a, a Zimmer style for that mm-hmm. like because it had because it had 
synth, but it had like that Zimmer kind of synth to that, it, not not the, the synth Syrah and the style. big orchestra. The synth yeah, and the big exactly. orchestra. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I got you there. Did you I, I, did you guys it, like yeah. the sort of steel drum licks that were kind of flying beneath some of that pulsing percussion yeah. there at the beginning? It was okay. different. Yeah, uh, it, was different. it was okay. I'm not sure I how I feel this, about that yet. I think this track could have probably worked in any, like, would have actually have worked on in a regular Bond film on its own. Yeah. Like, it's just being a very okay. a kind of right. suspense-building kind of sequence. Well, that's the thing, because it's suspense-building, like, it makes sense. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of stuff we're used to in a Bond film, I think, is what we're getting at, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it, the music does carry the sense of the big reveal of the satellite coming out of the water. Like, you feel the yeah. scope of that, of that in the music. And I think David Arnold could easily have, like, digressed into a track yep. like this, you know, from Perhaps, his regular yeah. Yeah. orchestral stuff that he does, besides his... Uh, techno sound that he has as well. Yeah. Well, but uh, what's your take on that, Scott? On that sequence? Yeah, that's it, guys. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm right with you. I mean, I'm right with you. It's, it's, it's pretty. I think there's a good pulse we got going, a good atmosphere that started. But I, I didn't like. I don't think I liked. I'm still not sure, but I don't think I like the kind of steel drum sound that kind of flies distractingly behind, and. Um, <laughs> Then it gets a bit silly, Gustav Holst at the two-minute mark. I think it's a, it's okay, but yeah, whatever. It's funny. Uh, you didn't like the steel drum thing at the beginning. Um, it's kind of funny. It's like, as much as that's kind of jarring, it, compared to the rest of the stuff in this yeah, in yeah. this score with the jarring, we kind of almost like it's fine. That's like, right. We'll, yeah. let it, we'll let it go. Yeah, we're almost on it's this like, movie. Com- yeah. com- well, that's it. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. We hear a lot of tracks with it, like it kind of goes all over the place. That of what you're describing is so sort of low in the mix, or sort of low, and it doesn't interrupt us as mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. that we kind of just allow it. And it's like it's not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what I yeah. think. Yeah. I think you're right. Which I think yeah. is what you're getting at. It's less offensive than some of the other it's stuff. Less, it's less yes, offensive. less offensive. There yeah. you go. It's a minor criminal. <laughs> so speaking of more offensive, it's let's a yellow card, not a red card. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of more offensive guys, let's yeah. go uh, to the track 14. So this is supposed to be a climatic oh, sequence. Uh, and yeah. what the hell? Yeah, I'm really not <laughs> a fan of this one. It's really grating on the CD. I find it uh, like the second, second half of the track is a little more interesting than the first. But uh, both yeah. halves, both halves are really weakened by that kind of electro trumpet thing yeah. that's going on. Like, it, oh, he uses uh, it so I- much. Yeah, because I said it almost sounds like an 80s heist scene. And then the end of the track oh, sounds like that. the video yeah. game end credits. Yeah. Or yeah. Mario going down the, t- the d- d- down the pipe or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I describe it as like, <laughs> you know, I, I say, yeah, exactly. Like I say here, we got more water drops in a cave. Yeah. We have more weird, ominous synth. Mm-hmm. 8-bit video game music, as you call yeah. Jeff. Uh, yeah. And jazzy synth to boot on top of that. Mm-hmm. J- jazzy Jeff synth uh, to quote Scott. Uh, <laughs> jazzy Jeff, yeah. Hillary, yeah. Hillary's pool house. Yeah, there you Hillary's, go. Hillary's pool house music. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that's where the soundtrack was, was recorded. It was in Hillary's pool house. Yeah. That's where Massive Attack was recording it. That's right. Massive yeah. Attack was. <laughs> I'm now picturing Alfonso Ribeiro like, doing the dance to his dance to this music yeah. now. Oh, God. Um, it's it is funny though, but you know, uh, um, this is the Carlton dance of the uh, Bond scores. What you say though, Josh? Earlier you said this this that, that that what you said was a kazoo, and I mean I know you've acknowledged that that's not what it is, but that sort I of know. odd electro trumpet thing. I think you're right. I think that is that sort of that that flashy brass berry sound that he's just trying to get in here, and he's trying to do it in his own way. 
in his own way. Yeah, he's yeah. trying to do like the electronic or his version of it, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. But like, I don't he's, know trying, he's you... trying to do that yeah. Goldfinger motif, you know, like that you sure. that has become so copied in all kinds of spy films. In yes. my opinion. Yeah. And that's yeah. but but again though, I mean he's doing what he was hired to do. He's giving this sure. sort of a sound yeah. to the Bond I mean, sound. And if that's they if, knew if, what they were getting into. Yeah. I know what they're getting into. <laughs> You like my music in the professional and you That's want to right. hear the James here Bond version or yep. my interpretation of a James Bond score? Here you go. Mm-hmm. This is my interpretation Whoa. of James Bond score. Yeah. That's basically it. Well, what about the next track, guys? Forever, James. I have nothing written here. <laughs> that tells you what uh, I thought of this one. Honestly, yeah. And by this point in the score, I'm like, I've heard this so many times already. Well, that's yes. that's that's it. Is yes. that and that's and all I put was revisiting left theme. That's right, uh, revisiting right? left theme. Yeah. happy notes, good book and track. That's mm-hmm. that's, that's what it. I put, yeah. and I think that that sums it up. That's all you need to say. Derivative. Eh. And then after you know, we oh, find the movie exciting. Song. I remember watching this. Mm-hmm. I every time I watch Goldeneye, and then I get that sequence where it kind of ends like Goldfinger, very with them lying on the ground. And yep. This time you have like the special forces guys come out of the grass and stuff, and uh, Joe Don Baker's character is there. Uh, sure is. And then all of a sudden it, it builds into this like anticlimactic like I know, right? song. Oh the god, Bond. this song is terrible. I hate this song. Bond at all? <laughs> I had to double take again because I'm like, what is Sting doing here? Yeah, I thought what Peter Gabriel, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's like a B-side like, impression, however you oh, look at it. We're hearing this piece of music. I would go to the patisserie, buy my uh, baguette, and then get shot like the beginning of the French Connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. To okay. so bring it back to like um, mm. uh, Jean Reno, I guess. We'll bring it back to like, uh, yeah. But now, song. guys, do you think that, that Sarah oh, had song. any 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 conversation about or was he just tasked with here to do an end credit song write a song like cause this honestly, is this a yeah like is it an attempt at musical catharsis is that what it is Amy honestly this I feel like this whole thing is like him being like I'm gonna see if I just do everything that I want and just put it towards a Bond movie and see what happens <laughs> it's a very odd, odd way to end this film. Like you say, like we've got a light, a light romantic moment, not like a dense romantic moment. And this is like the lyrics of this very much, very much speak to like a, a hide your feelings until I don't know until somebody comes and rescues you from yourself. But life's great. Just make love and ignore trouble and pretend yeah. that you're strong and you, you, pretend you're stronger than you are because you're a spy. But I mean, I'm making shit up. But it's this really kind weird. of. This song reminds me of the the music that my mom would put on when we would have company over, like when they just have the background, yeah. and I would be like, "I'm done my dinner. Can I go now?" Because like I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this. And I want to yeah. like watch Ninja Turtles or play some video game because I'm like yeah. I I just don't want to listen to this adult contemporary crap right now. It's an odd. It's an odd way to end the Bond, just, Bond film. Yeah, yeah. It, it's. Yeah. I mean, like, look, it's a song, and he did it, and he, he's. You know, obviously he's he's a professional, but intended. Um, but I, I don't like this song, and I don't think it really fe- fits it the feel of the it's film. Terrible. However, but if we're going with it doesn't fit, then it fits. <laughs> that's right. If yeah, we're going that's exactly right. This way, yeah. The fact that it doesn't fit, then <laughs> it suits but, well. Yeah. It, then it then it suits at this yeah. point. Yeah, absolutely. You're trying to fit the you're trying to fit the cylinder into the square hole, basically. Yeah. Um, <sighs> here's the thing, though, and I'll be devil's advocate here. We have had Bond films end with a similar type of song. I mean, if you look yeah. at, for example, like uh, uh, the If You Ask Me To at the end of uh, 
Uh, that's that's got a real that's got a rhythm though, man. That that's or, <laughs> or yeah, or for example, a much better example. A rhythm. With, with, <laughs> this does. doesn't have a rhythm. Yeah. No, this is like a manatee parked. But my point is that they, is that is that they, they did it correctly for license to kill. Yes. And they definitely okay, yes, did it correctly yeah, yeah. with like the pretenders uh, at the end of Living Daylights as well. Yes, you're right. They yeah, did. They absolutely did. did. Yeah. yeah. But uh, this is an example of what I think Sarah was trying to do with this score, or mm-hmm. the editor was trying to do with this score, putting the song at the end and in that kind of same kind of coda. Mm-hmm. But just doesn't uh, it just doesn't uh, land i guess you could say you know guys it's a real testament to the film isn't it that that the score doesn't ruin the film completely and that goldeneye remains because there's enough music in here that could have made really bad work of a lesser film okay i mean i know you guys have watched it a little more recently than me and i i'd watched a few of the clips for context here uh but when josh and i had watched it together like all all that time ago Mm -hmm. when we were still roommates uh, like the music didn't take us out of the film at all. Like I mean, I, I guess Josh and I probably spoke, uh, you know, while we were watching the film about pieces here and there. I think, but but at at no point were we saying like, God, this music's taking us out of the film. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. Right? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. I mean, yeah. uh, in summation, and I suppose we're we're at that stage of of things here now. Um, having watched the film, you know, I. I don't think that any of the action sequences appear to have been spotted by Eric Serra to, to hit points on the screen. And I mean, that that's obviously a more classical Hollywood scoring type of thing. But the tones captured in the score, you know, you get your fear, you get the kind of quiet reflection, the creeping around. I mean, I think they sometimes fit. And the paces it, of the it's tracks... It's subtle. It's yeah. subtle, but it does. Yeah, yeah. But, but the paces, yeah. Josh, like the paces of the tracks normally fit the action that you're watching, whether it's fast yeah. or slow or whatever. But there's no extended cue here with no. moments of score integrated in, uh, you know, breathing or noticeably kind of like bursting with action on the screen. Maybe, maybe except for the St. Petersburg cue, which we know that Altman <sighs> came in and helped with, right? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, well, I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like because of the wide brushstroke, and the generic scoring to the film, there isn't much sophistication here. No. And when you're listening to it on album, that really stands out when you compare this yes. to previous composers who, who all use Yeah, well, music. that's the thing. It's like, and I, if, if, Sarah, if Sarah was trying to show it, it was like, you know, um, I guess a, uh, not a complicated, but like a sophistication, it doesn't come across. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't And it? because no. Bond scores are usually sophisticated or at least they they should like they're ornate we all kind yeah, of ex- yeah. expect it to be ornate or uh you know have that that style of sophistication because of what it is uh-huh. this we don't feel that way and and it, it, it falls flat at least for um listening uh especially if you don't if you're just listening to it as a as an album mm-hmm. uh there's a lot it's of tough, context yeah. you're not a, it's really tough to listen track to track and I think ornate's maybe not the right word for me to have used, I guess, because it's, in its, it's own fun, way, man. in its own way, this is ornate. It's just not the ornate that suits this type of yes, franchise, exactly. right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, for me, even when it's effective, the music is just, it's kind of more suited to the world of video games or episodic well, TV where we don't and have, I, and I'm telling you. where we don't yeah, have exactly. that sort of, like, 
you can pause the game, right? Or you can pause the TV or whatever, and the music keeps things going because you can sometimes just still hear the music going in the background when you pause the game. And I think that's exactly what this is. You don't need it to be matched to any one scene because it just isn't, it isn't kind of tied. There's no fibers connecting it to any one particular scene because it's not spotted. It's just music that's in the movie. And... I think, yeah, whatever. I think I've said it enough. It's just not really suitable for a motion picture of this scale. And maybe in a film that wasn't so loud and set piece and quick moving, Sarah's music is a little more standout. But here it's lost. And the sounds that we do get are weird and not fitting the images on the screen. And it's it's just weird. Again, I'm going to say my hot take this whole thing is like... I'm not trying to say Sora is not good at his craft. Mm-hmm. He's obviously got a lot of years and a lot of work, and he's got a lot of uh, yeah, yeah. you know acclamations. But I honestly prefer the score to the video game than yeah. to the actual mm-hmm. person. Well, <laughs> don't think you'd be alone. My feel on this whole thing is that Sarah's music, I think, fits the style of the movies that Luc Besson makes. They fit Luc Besson's style to the T because Luc Besson has a different way of looking at cinema than, uh, I guess, the majority of the Hollywood kind of style. James Bond is part of a Hollywood kind of style, Mm -hmm. even though it's British. It does have that big feel, big movie feel to it. And the scores have to match that feel. And that's what the Bond scores are meant to do. They're meant to immerse you into the world in which they're trying to convey. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what those John Barry scores did, and that's what the best Bond scores do, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, though, I agree with you guys. Is I don't think the score in any way... I don't think it ruins the movie at all. I don't think it even really takes me out of it, because no. I think I think the directing and the editing and the acting mm-hmm. uh, and the cinematography, I think everything in that aspect Carries makes GoldenEye a much better film than the score that it was given, in my, yes. my opinion. And I think those drown out uh, the awkwardness and the, the non-fittiness of this score. Yeah. I don't think they drown it out. I think they water it down. But there are moments, and this is where I will disagree with you guys. And I mean, I like GoldenEye. I do like GoldenEye. But I think that there are moments in this movie where I am taken out by the music. And I'm taken out during that car chase at the start. Um, it's insipid. It's, it's, uh, it's juvenile. It's really... Like, it's this isn't bit, James Bond, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a bit jarring well, following yeah. the whole opening. First, you have the opening sequence where the music works well. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the title sequence. And then you mm-hmm. come into this immediately after that. And I think when you come after that, you're supposed to go right into the Bond movie, yeah. uh, so, so to speak, yeah. when you go from the title sequence into that lady, into the, into, uh, the post-title sequence. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. post-title sequence, unfortunately, was this car chase scene. And it was the wrong type of music. There's a couple of other sequences where, yeah, they're, it's watered down, but sometimes it's not watered down enough that it comes to the surface. And then you're like, okay, this is a weird choice of music. Huh. Yeah. It doesn't sync to film. It doesn't. No, no again, definitely that's, not. That's, that's no. because of the tech, of the, of the professionalism yeah, I, I agree. and the efficiency of Martin Campbell. And you can see why he was asked to come back for, uh, <laughs> to once again restart the franchise with Casino Royale years later. And yeah, well, you're absolutely right. But 
the failure of this music, and I'm sure you guys agree with me, and I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that most of our listeners do as well, that the failure of this music is really highlighted when David Arnold turns in his assignment for Tomorrow Never Dies, right? Oh, man. Which is just outstanding and links beautifully with the series. And, yep. you know, right, you know, he just picks up stuff from Barry's to, um, from Russia with Love Score, you know, and it does all sorts of great stuff. Actually, it's interesting. I listened to an interview with David Arnold from June of just this year. Um, I just listened to this on a podcast recently, and he claimed not to find the music a GoldenEye offensive at all. He had said he had <laughs> said so during the 1990s as well. But, you know, you know, as well as I do, that if you're coming on the back of Gold, GoldenEye, you're feeling pretty good as a composer taking over the reins because you know that there's only one direction that you can go, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking there got to be some good moments in, in my score if uh, if I'm following up this guy's work. But, yeah. I, you know, I think, Josh, you're right. It doesn't sync the film, but it does not listen well to me, at least on album. No. It no. This is more of a head-scratching yeah. score and, and then, then it is an acceptable one. And I think that although we've taken Sarah's story now we understand the context a bit better and we acknowledge and appreciate what he has said about his involvement and his lack of professionalism sure. and his wish that he had been a little less artistic and, and yeah. more more traditional leaning perhaps that it never deviates like it's guttural churns it's clangs it's echoey <laughs> yes. synth chorus like it it, it it never deviates from these sounds like it, it's like here's my soundscape and i'm going to use these colors and these sounds to paint my entire or your entire experience of goldeneye and mm -hmm. as it at its best to me it's it's just a passable episodic tv score it's well, it's just got exactly it's got none of the wham that i want to see but yeah i mean i'm not gonna i'm not uh, the, the score fails i think the and score fails miserably but the, the film doesn't. I would yes. rather have George Michael and that other guy uh, do that. Actually, <laughs> you, you said wham. So I did, but I didn't. I didn't mean that. But yeah, yeah. I know. I know, I know what you mean. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you George guys, Mike, or George Michael Bluth. Now, there you go. <laughs> can you guys? Can you say a little something about? Um, the fifth element score, because I, I understand that that sort of belching low tone sound that he uses here to represent the Russians, he uses almost identically for aliens in that film, right? Yes, for the aliens, as well for, I think, uh, Gary Oldman's character, too, who's like okay. this corporate Hitler type individual <sighs> who wants to get these stones or these powerful stones or whatever that are the key to, yeah. the, to the universe and stuff. Shakara stones from Molaram. <laughs> no, not really. Have you have you seen the Fifth Element? No, no, I haven't. Nope. Oh, you really? What? It's a, it's a no, I haven't, guys. No, I haven't. Oh my god! I definitely, I definitely recommend it. Oh. Okay, probably enjoy it. It's okay. it's quite oh. a trip. Probably it one is, of Bruce Willis's yeah. fun. But um, yeah, it's a and, fun Bruce Willis film that you're like, why is he in this? But he's awesome. It's, it's good. It's, oh man, I used oh, to wait, watch it, it like once a week. It, it also got the late oh, really? Ian, oh. Ian, oh, yeah. Ian Holm in it. Yeah. Uh, and X Files fans, it has John Neville in there as well. Oh, is John Neville in this uh, old yeah, Canadian guy? Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What does and, he play? Uh, uh, like some, oh, soldier, some like, like an old soldier, some asshole like naval officer, Earth yeah. naval officer, something yeah, yeah. like that. Okay, so yeah. so musically, we feel like that's that's a better fit. Oh, if you watch the movie, yeah. you'd probably agree that his style works well with oh, this. For sure. It was this for kind sure. of like. French, uh, European French comic style meets a Hollywood, uh, like outer space blockbuster. Yeah. And then you also have Bruce Willis in the middle there, trying to be almost like a John McClane type, but yeah. but more confident and more like uh, he's more he's more cavalier. Like he's, he's more yeah, having fun. Yeah. He's more having fun, and you can see. Yeah, it's interesting because he's kind of like this, like you know, like an ex cop. 
Uh, but he's also a cab driver, and he's mm. just trying to make ends meet. And he's he's a good guy, but he's kind of lazy, and he just kind of gets stuck. And it's it's just a it's a it's a really fun movie. And, cool. and I'll tell you what, though, like once I found out that Eric Sarad did the score to uh, <laughs> a Fifth Element. Then I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> like, when I hear the golden eye, and I'm like, and, yeah. that still doesn't, like, that doesn't make it okay, but mm-hmm. I get it. You get it. And yeah. then we also get more, like, Basan loves his strong female protagonist. You know, you got his Nikita, you got his yeah. Matilda, yep. you got Scarlett yep. Johansson as Lucy, for example, like, mm-hmm. years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anna, for example, coming yeah, out. And then, Anna of course, well, you have yeah. Mila Jovovich's character yeah. in The Fifth Element, who's very charming and adorable and really oh. weird and i think that's what kind of gave her a bit of a career i suppose yeah, yeah. um I, it, it doesn't excuse those resident evil movies though in my opinion oh god those are terrible <laughs> well um bringing it back yeah. bringing it back bringing it back there you go we've um we, so we've given you our take on the score for golden eye um be very curious to know if there's anyone out there who disagrees with us or indeed if you want to support support our feelings let us know you can let email us, us on uh, bond by numbers three at gmail.com three because there's three of us scott jeff and josh josh what you got going on you got geek coming up again <laughs> Treat, cheating the geeks <laughs> uh, free the greeks it's my podcast i'm joking man i just yeah. i can't help myself i did it last time i did it last time and it was so natural and it was uh, we were all laughing that was so and now funny. that was funny and now if I'm anything just going it's free the geeks it's us free us from our quarantine and doing these podcasts all the time just kidding uh yeah, well. well just nice to get out of the house then we can still do podcasts but just nice to get out of the house whenever we want to Without having to worry about so many, so much BS going on out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the podcast is uh, Free the Greeks. It's, it's my solo take on the Peloponnesian War. If mm-hmm. you're into history, if you like Greek history, uh, if you're into war, if you're into uh, uh, great tragedies on an epic scale, uh, check out my podcast. Uh, or, if podcast in, itself, or if you're just, just into the just BFG. The What's yeah, that? if you're just into the BFG. Yeah. Maybe you're just into Josh and you want to check out more of his beautiful tones and move your move yourself on over. Scroll your mouse over to uh, Free the Geeks. I mean, Free the Greeks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Greek. That time it was an accident again. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And if and while we're plugging ourselves, uh, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I'm not plugging anything, buddy. Yeah, I'm like, not doing that. Anyways, we got her lighting the pipes as well. If you're into uh, our second season now, we did the first season on Sherlock Holmes Mm -hmm. uh, by Arthur Conan Doyle. And season two, we're now working on uh, the the famous L.A. detective, uh, Philip Marlowe. Absolutely. So so if you're into that, uh, check out our our other podcast as well. Yeah, it was fun having Jeff on the show to review Enola Holmes a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was fun. It was a good one. Anyway, there you go. That's our take on the GoldenEye uh, soundtrack. And I'm glad we went through the story. I feel a little bit better now knowing at least that my feelings aren't yeah, as prejudiced I, I, as they were before. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, I respect Sarah a bit a bit more because I understand him now a bit more well, than then I, that's, as I think that's guy. part of it too, yeah. right? Yeah. It is I for just sure. think I have a very neutral meh about yeah. it, I, I think, in the end. And I think that's it, fine with yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Right. I, I got to be honest, guys, though, it was tough listening to this score so much in preparation for yes. today like so i was really I, tired of this you're gonna hate me i listened to it once and i just made my notes i do hate you <laughs> i do hate you i mean i'm the guy who did the heavy lifting for this episode so i'm really looking forward to uh, i'm looking forward to season three where maybe scott can do less lifting and uh, more play <laughs> i mean i only had to listen to it once i made my notes i mean i don't know what more i could have gleaned out of it like <laughs> fair I, enough I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know like yeah. I kept listening. I kept listening, waiting for something. If there's gold in the river, you know what I mean? (laughs) You're right. 
You are right. Shifting. I was shifting for a while. I never got a nugget. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not a nugget of gold, anyway. Yeah. Then no. Black Hills. Just, just an eye, no gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, gentlemen, it's it's been fun. Thank you very much for uh, taking this journey with me. And I and I do think, in retrospect, and in the spirit of you know posterity and whatnot, that having looked at the best, but, but arguably the best Bond score, coming to this one to discuss and to thrash out what many feel is the worst was was a worthwhile venture. And I hope our listeners have at least enjoyed or learned a little something along the way. So. For me, Scott, over here in Scotland, it is goodbye, and uh, take care of yourselves, everybody. And it's au revoir for me and over here in Ottawa, Canada. And it's uh, see you later from Jeff the other end of Ottawa. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you back here soon. <laughs>